Hello, and welcome back to another thrilling episode of By the Seed of Our Plants. Uh, we've got a special treat for you all this time. Uh, ben went to Hawaii. That's right. I did. I went to Kauai, in fact, in July of this year, 2022. Um, and so what we got here for you today is an interview with Dustin Wolkus, the manager of the seed bank at the National Tropical Botanical Gardens in Kauai. Um, I'm blanking on the name of the exact McBride, I think. The McBride Center, I think, was the actual location of the research center in the lab. This is pretty cool. Pretty fun thing that I did there. Uh, it's been a while, but here we are back at you with something pretty special. So this is a long episode. Pretty long form. And yeah, uh, I felt uh, like I I definitely said wow a lot, you know? Like, I, <laughs> I don't want to say I was starstruck, but, you know, I was a little nervous meeting this guy, you know? there in Hawaii and, and, uh, and I kept being like, he would, he would be like, you know, he would say something fairly mundane and I would be like, Oh, wow. 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 <laughs> oh my God. Wow. You know? <laughs> um, so you're definitely going to hear that. It probably won't bother anybody else as much as it bothered me, but I just, <laughs> I just wanted to point it out. <laughs> you said, wow. A lot. He said, yeah, a lot. It was a very, very affirmational, uh, conversation. Yeah. I appreciated I, that. I really need to get a little better at my Owen Wilson, you know. <laughs> wow. 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 Yeah, we'll cut those out. <laughs> uh, but no, it was a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed uh, listening to it, you know, third hand um, in the in the roughs earlier. We guys got into a, a, a whole lot of stuff talking yeah. about uh, island island biology, island biogeography, kind of both the the beauty and the tragedy and the triumph of yeah. Um, of living in a little rock sticking out of the Pacific ocean a zillion miles from anywhere else. Yeah. And what that does to plants and the people who love them in that place. Yeah, absolutely. It was definitely a little overwhelming, you know, being there and trying to, you know, I learned a lot in the interview. Mm. Um, but you know, I, I also just didn't digest a lot, you know, in the moment and mm -hmm. didn't, start digesting it until later, you know, <laughs> re-listening to it for editing and stuff. Yeah. yeah. I, I really enjoyed how, how much you guys got into it. Adaptive radiation was uh, one of my favorite science terms as a kid. I had a, uh, a time life book that had pictures of Darwin's finches, which are all these, uh -huh. these finches on the Galapagos islands that have all these, these different, um, weird fucked up beaks that they, um, uh, decided to put on after, after getting stuck on, on the Galapagos off the coast of Ecuador for however many hundreds of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. um, so it was cool talking about that in terms of plants. Yeah, for sure. So adaptive radiation, I guess, for, for those of you keeping score at home, is the propensity of organisms arriving in a relatively open um, environment, like an island that doesn't have a lot of other organisms on it, or like a, a newly destroyed volcanic plain, rapidly speciating into many, many different types of creature that do different things. So in the, in the classic case of Darwin's finches, you've got a regular garden variety finch that arrives on the Galapagos islands. And one of them develops a big beak for cracking nuts. And the other one develops a little woodpeckery beak for pecking wood and eating grubs. And another one develops a propensity for eating seeds. And another one eats insects and another one, makes small cars and another one makes, you know, large fuel inefficient cars and another one <laughs> prefers the color blue and the other one, you know, only listens to reggae music. And so this is adaptive radiation is mm. the propensity of, 
of life to move away from homogeneity and towards um, baffling uh, complexity. You know, mm. why does the why does the the finch with the large seed eating beak um, refuse to listen to reggae? That's right. It's it's fun when you're you know want to jam. Yeah, know? I mean it's so cool that Darwin ended up taking that path. You know, because um, it was definitely more successful than his inventor stage. You know, there's a yeah. lot of people forget about is Darwin's winches. They didn't, they weren't um, nearly as adaptive. <laughs> Just, uh, oh man, you're, 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 we're going to have to bleep that out. <laughs> Talking in Belgian like that. Well, those are, you're Belgian of, language. No, you're thinking of Darwin's winches. <laughs> oh man. But yeah, no, I mean, Dar Darwin's own children, um, you know, one of them had, uh, had a long, a long protuberant beak for eating, uh, eating muscles. It's probably all that radiation. <laughs> that adaptive radiation. That they adapted to. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, Lord. Okay. Well, you, there, you had something else to say. Fuck, did I? Yeah, about money. Uh, we'd like some of it if you have some. <laughs> please give it to us. <laughs> please give it to us. I'm going to get better at this one of these days, I swear. We can't stay in this fight without your help. I Only one of us is going to walk out of this room tonight. And I can't <laughs> yeah. I, I can't do it unless you give me your money, not not Ben. Give yeah. your money to Ben, not Ben. Just put it down on, on the dotted... Fuck. I, okay, let me try this again. <laughs> Buy the Seed of Our Plants is a product of the... Little Blue Stem Media Amp. Fuck, no, that's not even any better. Little Blue Stem is produced in partnership with Grayface Studios and Little Blue Stem, which is a nonprofit that grows and distributes local genotype native plants and produces fabulous radio like this. Uh, and we currently have an open match donation operation going on right now until early next year. So any donation you provide to the radio show or to Little Blue Stem in general is doubled by a generous donor. So if you would like to uh, kick us some dough for the holiday season, any day can be a holy day when you throw money at your favorite radio program, littlebluestem.net. Yeah. Where do you think the phrase kicking dough someone's way came from? Because to me, that would be an insult, like this dusty ball of dough <laughs> <laughs> lying at me, you know? <laughs> It dates from Chaucerian times. Okay. Yeah. When, uh, when people paid for things before they invented money, they paid for things in, in uncooked bread. That's right. That's why, why you have to get that bread before it's kicked at you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the interview is coming. I did also want to just make another, so I was using uh, the microphone that I'm on now, but I was, I didn't have a stand with me and I was holding it and the cable that I was using, unbeknownst to me, I thought I had selected the most uh, reliable cable and it turned out to be i got uh, julius caesar by that cable it invaded gaul while you weren't watching <laughs> and then <laughs> shit crossed the rubicon and that was it oh man yeah so it, it was it probably isn't going to bother anyone else as much as it bothered me but i could not help kicking myself because there's times when i'm like what was i was i like swinging the microphone around <laughs> above my head like a fucking cowboy getting ready to lasso a steer like what I don't know. It, it probably won't bother anybody else, but I just Folks, had to. it sounds fine. <laughs> I just had to make it. It's not up to fine. my standard. So um, I apologize dearly from the bottom of my worm sickle. Okay. Well, if that's everything, roll that interview.
So how did you get into what you're doing? You said you came, you studied audio engineering, but yeah. you're obviously not doing that exactly. Yeah, let's see. So yes, my undergrad is, um, yeah, it's a BS in BS, basically. Uh, <laughs> um, the concentration is ecology and conservation biology. Okay, that's yes. your undergrad. Yes, Okay, yes, cool. Yes. yes, doing plant stuff for my master's. I, I looked at old school plant ecology of these, uh, really unique and remote wetland types called cienegas. Cienega. Yeah, it's like a term that the uh, Spanish explorers brought over to describe a freshwater emergent marshland. Wow. Wetland. Oh, so cool. Um, yeah, so they're really cool and they're really understudied, I think, because they're so remote. Sure. Um, yeah, so I did that uh, and I always kept working at the garden. So like every day I was working on a different project, you know, flip the switch work on something else, flip the switch, work on something else. Yeah. But that turns out to be really good training because in real life you work on different stuff every day sometimes. So. Sure. Were you doing lab work at that garden? Very little. Okay. Yeah. So I was first hired to um, coordinate the garden's efforts in the National Native Seed Collecting Program, which is called Seeds of Success. Uh-huh. And that was cool. a grant-funded project. And when that, uh, when that funding ran out, they found a way to keep me on and uh, so I was, I was a research assistant. Uh, okay. So I was just kind of doing a little bit of everything, just helping, helping people in the department. Cool. National Native Seed Collecting? Uh, yeah, the National Native Seed Collecting Program. The Collecting name of it is Seeds of Success. Gotcha. And it's run out of the Bureau of Land Management. Okay, yeah, I think I've read about Seeds of Success. Um, Super cool program. Yeah, they, um, I'm trying to remember. I was reading about them probably just because they're really cool. <laughs> yeah. They're, yeah. They're super cool. Um, cool. So you had a, a, you've, you managed the, the seed bank here, right? Yes. You're, you're heavily involved with that, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So um, this job came around on the, on a listserv, that listserv actually. Uh, and I was still doing my master's, um, but I got the support of my supervisor and my advisor uh, and through my hat in because it looked, it looked really good, right? So it was field work and lab work with seeds um, mm -hmm. in Hawaii and studying plant conservation biology. Hawaii has unfortunately been termed the plant extinction capital of the world. Um, no way. And so we have, we have about ninety percent endemism in our flora. So about ninety percent of our plants occur only in Hawaii and nowhere else in the world. Mm. And um, wow, yeah, we have. Um, less than 1% of the land mass of the rest of the United States, but we have over half of all the endangered plant species listed under the Endangered Species Act. Wow, that's pretty asymmetrical. Yeah, well, let's not even talk about the asymmetry between plants and animal funding, but mm. yeah, that's Well, maybe else. we should. <laughs> Got anybody you want to call out? <laughs> well, you know, big charismatic uh, megafauna. Uh, compared to these little plants. Sure, uh, yeah. Even though there's, yeah, and so anyway, yeah, so I did, actually didn't get this job, but then they did some reorganizing and they, and they called me for an interview and um, yeah, they offered me the job and so I actually wasn't done with my master's yet, um, but I just um, kind of slapped it together and nice. defended my thesis uh, and left four days later to move oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, out to this island in the middle of the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was that was 2016. Oh, okay. Yeah. So whoa, big year. 
Big year. Yeah. 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 <laughs> big year for sure. Yeah. And wow. then, yeah. And so now I'm actually a PhD student at the University of Copenhagen. Oh, wow. Okay. So what are you flying there half the year? <laughs> I'm, I'm flying there in nine days. Really? If the, yeah. If the pilots aren't still on strike, but wow. I'm so glad I caught you before you flew out there. So uh, yeah. how, how long are you going to be there for? So I'll be, yeah. So I'll be one of my seed heroes has a lab in Denmark. Uh, that's not affiliated with Copenhagen. She's at Aarhus. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'll be um, studying with her for a week. Uh, and then I'll be uh, flying to Royal Botanic Garden Q Millennium Seed Bank um, and uh, studying with them for a week and then flying back to Copenhagen proper for a two-week course. So I'll be gone okay. for four weeks altogether. Okay, and this is really a learning trip for you then. Like oh, yeah, a yeah, lot yeah. Of, oh, yeah. A lot of hands-on stuff. Yes. Checking absolutely. out different seed banks. Yeah, cool. actually. Yeah. Who's this seed hero of yours? <laughs> yeah, well, I luckily um, on this trip get to work with a few of them. Uh, but the one in, in Denmark is Fiona Hay. Fiona Hay? Yeah. Cool. I don't think I've heard that name before. Oh, yeah, she's, she's one of my seed heroes for sure. What, uh, what makes her a hero? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's, there's not a lot of our, our seed banker uh, types around in the world. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty niche. There's a few, and they're scattered all around. Um, and, they're, and all of them are my seed heroes, really. <laughs> um, she's really interested in, um, in, in seed banking and, and conservation of seeds and extending seed uh, lifespan, seed longevities. Hmm. Uh, she's interested in um, the moisture relations between equilibrium relative humidity and moisture content in seeds and temperature hmm. uh, and how those play into longevity. Interesting. Yeah. So like how well they hold on to the moisture they have inside of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of it. Depending on like different environmental changes or whatever. Yeah, that's right. So at, um, yeah, so temperature and relative humidity are, are kind of linked, right? Because relative humidity is a measure of how much uh, water the air could hold. Hmm. And so you can measure the equilibrium relative humidity of seeds um, if you put them in a sealed chamber uh, with a sensor of a hygrometer. And that's a non-destructive test, uh, mm -hmm. which is really cool, especially when you're dealing with the rare and imperiled species of conservation importance. Sure, yeah. But that doesn't tell you actually how much water is in the seed, which mm. turns out to be important. And that um, is a destructive test, right? So you would, right. you would measure that just like you would measure the moisture content of any, anything, soils or bugs or whatever, right? Where mm. you, you weigh your sample and then you, you put them in the easy bake oven and bake them overnight. Yeah. Uh, so you're, you're baking all the water out and then you weigh them again. And the mass that is lost is the water, basically. Yeah, the water and... <laughs> The vitality of the seed, I guess. Yes, that is too. <laughs> You've cooked it out. You've baked it out. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's cool. Man, seed longevity must be... Uh, to me, it seems like there's some bleak implications to considering how long seeds will last, given what we know about some trends in our climate and, you know... Yes. It uh, must be a bit a bit bleak. Um, well, it depends, uh, right? Mm -hmm. The answer, just like the answer to so many things is it depends. Yeah. Um, yes. So this is what fascinates me is, is seed longevity. Mm. Um, and so, yeah. So if you can think of um, a typical seed survival curve, 
um, it looks like a, a survival curve for anything where you have very high viability for some period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, so imagine you're on a plateau uh, and then you reach a cliff and then you just fall off the cliff over time, right? Yeah. And so it's my job to try to understand what that curve looks like, the plateau and, and the cliff and how steep that cliff is mm. over time. And so that uh, can vary pretty drastically between species, sometimes even closely related species, but will even vary within an accession or a collection mm -hmm. from the same species. And there's all kinds of things that might play into that. So seed health, maternal effects, maternal effects, environmental conditions. But then once they've harvested, assuming that they've been harvested at uh, maturity, and mm -hmm. then we really only have a few tools at our disposal in order to extend the longevity, right? Push that plateau out and sure. make that slope not quite as steep. And so um, we can exclude light. That's nice. Uh, but uh, the main things are we can dry them uh, and we can cool them. And it turns out that if we can only do one of those things, that drying seeds alone has a bigger influence on extending longevity than does cooling alone. Really? So drying the seeds is actually the most important thing we can do uh, to extend their longevities. Hmm. Um, yeah. However, not all species behave the same way when you try to apply these tools to them. Um, so hmm. if you've ever heard uh, of an orthodox or recalcitrant seeded species, in an orthodox seeded species... They survive uh, desiccation to pretty low levels. Mm -hmm. And then, so you can then freeze them um, because the remaining water, so most of the water um, is gone because we've dried them. Mm -hmm. And the remaining water just kind of freezes in place and it forms a, a viscoelastic or a glass and achieves this wow. glassy state. So that's the secret. Um, inside, like in, deep inside the seed. Yes. Like so in glass. and around the cells of Whoa. the seed. Yeah. That's great. Is there, wow. That's mind, it's pretty mind-blowing. So, so, so that's the secret. So that's with orthodox seeds. Okay. Uh, so on the other end um, of this gradient, you have recalcitrant seeded species. So these are species that don't tolerate any kind of desiccation whatsoever. Um, and mm -hmm. so you then you can't freeze them, right? Because if you can't um, get rid of the water, then the water in, in the seeds or in and around the cells of the seeds they create crystals, right? Glass. Sure. We call that, or not glass, we call that ice. Uh, yes, <laughs> so ice is a crystal. Uh, and so those ice crystals um, are lethal to the cells of the seeds. Sure. Yeah, because um, they, they burst the cell walls, right? Yes, that's yeah. right. Same thing with like, yeah, freezing anything. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, that's why like, um, yeah, a frozen banana tastes sweeter um, than an unfrozen banana is mm. because the cell walls have burst and those sugars... Uh, are now come out and you and um, are more readily available to your tongue or something. Mm, yeah, something like that. Yeah, that yeah. sounds right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's um, also doesn't have something to do with why carrots are better after a, a frost. Like, oh, they, it should, they, should be the same thing. Sweet right. after the hard frost hits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Burst the cell walls and sugars come out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow, that's really fascinating. So, orthodox versus recalcitrant species. That seems like a, a pretty like significant just sort of like fork. Like you can sort of can you sort of sort all all potential seeds into these two categories? They're either orthodox or they're recalcitrant. Yeah. Well, humans like to put things into boxes, right? Exactly. And so yeah. this idea of desiccation tolerance is really a gradient, um, but it's just it's much easier to put them in in those boxes. Okay. Yeah. Um, but then um, um, yes, there's also this intermediate category um, with three subcategories. 
so hold on, hold depending, on. I, gotta, depending, I gotta draw a bigger graph over depending, here. Yeah, <laughs> just kidding. Depending on who you ask, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So there's uh, there's intermediate, short-lived, regardless of how they're dried or cooled. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like some alpine species. And then there's intermediate desiccation intermediate, which is just like what it sounds like. They survive more desiccation than a recalcitrant seeded species, but less than an orthodox. Uh-huh. Um, and then there's intermediate freeze sensitive. This is um, like an anomalous response to um, temperatures. Uh, so these are desiccation tolerant um, seeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, then they uh, respond strangely, peculiar way um, to freezing temperatures in the range of uh, conventional seed banking. Okay. Right. So, okay, let me say that another way. So the desiccation tolerant, um, well, so what we've noticed in Hawaii is that these seeds are desiccation tolerant, um, but their viability declines faster at frozen temperatures compared to cool temperatures above freezing temperatures. Yeah. Right. So that's like um, if you stick them, so you can, you can take the same batch of seeds you can dry them just like you would dry an orthodox species and then split them up, put some in the refrigerator and some in the freezer. Mm-hmm. And the ones in the freezer are going to die faster, um, yeah. which is really kind of mind-blowing. And it takes about two to five years to detect that divergence between the two. So it's not like you can just freeze them overnight and, and find this out. And then test tomorrow. That's right. Right. So it really takes, yeah, That's two to five interesting. years. So you're, you're thinking pretty long-term then if you're doing experiments on, you know, two to five years, you're trying to see, oh. like, what's the limit for how, how far you're trying to see how long these seeds will last? Like, how far out are you looking? Yeah, well, so longer than me. Um, for sure. <laughs> at least, at least, at least hopefully, and at least for some species. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So our very first seed accession is from 1989, and we've been uh, storing seeds every year since. And so we're the oldest known seed bank in Hawaii. Um, and it's a pretty old, uh, seed bank in, in general in that way, you know, today there's the, especially botanical gardens, right. Have really stepped up and realized that, um, they need to be a bigger player in plant conservation. Mm-hmm. And so lots of botanical gardens have seed banks. There's all kinds of seed banks nowadays, but not so much in the, in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really kind of cool. But what we can do now is, um, we can, try to reach back in time and, and pull out uh, those data uh, oh, from some of these older seed collections. So he saw all the, all the volunteers and, mm-hmm. and interns and students in the lab. And one of the things that they're working on today is that they're um, doing viability assays uh, through the germination test. So they're looking uh-huh. at, um, for germination um, in these seeds um, that are up to 30 years old. Oh, wow. Right. So, so, okay. So I described the, the plateau and the cliff earlier. Yes? Right. Yeah. So, um, one of the ways, well, the way that we, um, try to identify, um, those curves, the mountain and the plateau is by testing them right at regular intervals. So, uh, right now we have it, uh, where we at time zero. So we try to get initial viability whenever we can, that'll tell us, uh, about the overall health of the accession before it comes in anyway. And is mm-hmm. is important, um, but we can also then relate um, later viability tests to that initial or fresh viability. And then we take them, uh, so then we process them for storage, and then we take them out at designated intervals. So right now, one, two, five, ten, and every ten years after. Okay. Um, so yeah, so these things wow. will, so these things are going to outlast me uh, for sure. Yeah, so when you're testing the viability, are you still 
trying to figure out that plateau and cliff situation? Um, yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. One of the problems is that we weren't doing um, these viability testings until 2016. Oh, wow. And so for, for these older accessions, if viability is high, then that's awesome. Great. Viability is, is high. Um, but if they're not high, then we, we don't know what that means. Maybe they were never high to begin with. Oh, yeah. So we don't know if they've declined. We also don't know if we're doing it right, right? Because so all seeds need four things to germinate. And then uh, even if they're getting those four things, they still might be dormant. Mm -hmm. uh, so we don't know if we're getting the germination requirements right. We don't know if um, the mm -hmm. dormancy and we're breaking dormancy. Wow. So this seems like very inchoate. Like it's a developing science. Yeah. Yeah. In a way, it's, it's one of the things that's really exciting. It's also some job security, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Always nice to have a little bit of that. So yeah. what's the goal of uh, preserving the seeds in a seed bank? Is it, is it kind yeah. of a situ apocalypse situation where like there's the seed bank and... Well, we're, we're, we're a little bit here in Hawaii. Um, uh -huh. uh, yeah, unfortunately, it's really sad. I mean, many species, native species have gone extinct just like within our lifetimes, yeah, right? And many, many more since the arrival of, of humans to the island. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and climate change is going to help that. And yeah, so, right. So I should say um, it's in our mission to save plants. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that you can do that is by having an off-site or an XC2 uh, plant conservation collection. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the most efficient way to have that kind of a collection is to house the plants as seeds in a seed bank. Mm -hmm. And when I say most efficient, you can name your metric, whether it's time, dollars, human resources, water, electricity, storage space, whatever it is, most efficient to have those seeds as a seed bank. Sure. Um, so we can preserve these seeds in a way that will hopefully um, allow them to last for decades to centuries. As opposed to like Maybe three beyond. years or something like that. Uh, well, yeah. It, again, it depends. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, interestingly, um, you cannot correlate time in a soil seed bank with time in a conservation seed bank. That makes right? all the sense so, in the world. <laughs> so, some species um, uh, they 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 don't last very long in a soil seed bank at all. Mm. Um, but they are orthodox species, so we can conserve those for a really long time. Right, so mm. Ohia, for example, is mm -hmm. one of these. So this is a uh, Metrosideros is the genus um, in Hawaii. Metrosideros, um, the endemic Metrosideros are all of a, so our native our native Metrosideros are all endemic, mm -hmm. uh, and the Hawaiian name for those is Ohia, and the, so this is our foundational forest tree species, um, which means that if you were to remove this species, um, it's the most so it's the most dominant and mm -hmm. abundant. Um, species in the music and wet forests mm -hmm. and um, if you were to take the species out the ecosystem collapses yeah wow and so just like a keystone species it's like, like a keystone species except that in a keystone species um, that species biomass is disproportionate to its ecosystem services that it provides uh, oh. or its role in uh, maintaining the ecosystem meaning there's more biomass than so in a you would expect or less? Yeah, so in a foundational, um, it's the same as a keystone, except um, it has um, high biomass. Oh, so, so the Ohia is, yeah. is foundational. Yeah, so, so Ohia is foundational. Interesting, okay. Yeah. I didn't, that's, that's a cool distinction. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah it gets uh, misreported sometimes. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, so yeah, because it's the most abundant and it's, and it's like one of the bigger trees, um, 
it, it cannot, by definition, be a keystone species. But it is a foundational species, so Interesting. It's, it's, it's equally important. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, yes. So um, these trees have become under threat um, from two recently described fungal pathogens, mm-hmm. um, which uh, colloquially we're calling Rapidohia death. And um, yeah, so it's, yeah, so once a tree shows signs of infection, um, the, the, all the leaves turn brown and then the uh, tree is defoliated. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, we're talking weeks to months between uh, noticing oh, uh, gosh, the infection. Oh gosh, that's so fast. Yes. That is uh, so fast. It's so fast and it's so scary, mm-hmm. right? So this is one of the most ecologically important species, but it's also one of the most culturally important species in Hawaii. Right. And so all, you, and on the Big Island has been most affected. Um, over 135,000 acres have been affected in some way. Mm. Um, and what they're seeing there is that when the trees are gone, uh, the understory dies, so all the rare plants die, and then weeds come and um, replace them. Yeah, so successional species and invasives, I'm assuming. Yeah, just, yeah, uh, competitively superior um, sure. non-native species, you yeah. could say. Um, what what kind of non-native species do you see moving into those spaces? Oh yeah, so the forester, or the the big state forester, told me those species exactly, and I can't remember exactly what he said, but I want to say strawberry guava is one of the bigger ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe some melastomes. I don't remember. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, so yes. So anyway, so these seeds, um, um, thankfully, they're they're very small seeds, so you can. Uh, easily put a hundred thousand in the palm of your hand, um, so they don't take up very much space. That's a good thing, and also they're orthodox, uh, so oh, we great. can conserve them by conventional seed banking methods. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really good. However, um, they're unlikely to persist for long periods of time in the soil seed bank. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a shame. So. That was a big arc on the... Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah, back, I, I see how you tied that back into the, the gradient there, right? Of, yes. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, in Hawaii, um, we have the biggest proportion of our flora that exhibits this intermediate freeze-sensitive storage behavior of any flora ever assessed. So Hawaii can really serve as a model for other island, tropical, and subtropical e- ecosystems in sea conservation. Whoa, cool. Yeah. Really yeah. cool. That sounds, that's awesome. Uh, <laughs> Hawaii is awesome. <laughs> Hawaii is, is awesome. It's a, it's a wonderful place um, to study plant conservation. Sure. Um, gosh, there's so many things I wanted to touch on. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, I wanted to ask about the fungal pathogen that's oh, yeah. attacking the ohia trees. Is that yeah. a, like a root rot or um, how uh, does that, does that get in through a wound in the tree? Yes, it does. So, um, believe it or not, there's actually two different species of ceratocystis fungi, um, both recently described um, oh, and wow. from two different parts of the world. And so there's ceratocystis leucoohia, uh, which is like destroyer of ohia, and that's a wilt. Um, okay. And um, so that, yeah, it gets in the vasculature of the plant um, and, uh, yeah, kills the whole plant. Uh, the other is uh, Ceratocystis juliohia, or changer of ohia. Uh, same thing, um, it, yeah, it gets into the vasculature, but then it only kills downstream portions. So if the limb um, has it, oh, and that's a canker. Oh, okay. yeah. So it'll sort of like prune off, you know, whatever is further along in the vascular system. Right, exactly. 
Okay. Yeah, and that is a, a kinker. Okay. Um, yes, and it's a little bit less virulent. Um, yeah, I could yeah. see, I could see both, some things surviving that, maybe. Right. Yeah. But then you're, yeah, just infecting more trees. Sure. Um, yes, but, yeah, in both cases, you need a wound. Yeah. You need a wound. And so um, we get these uh, windstorms, uh, and so mm-hmm. the windstorms will both prune the trees and um, distribute the spores mm, and uh, open wounds. And, and so stuff. that's a, exactly yeah. right. So now you're creating a, a big wound and now you have the spores blowing too. So that's a, that's a big vector, but we have um, native and non-native ambrosia beetles mm-hmm. uh, and they spread it too. And we they? think that, yeah, ambrosia beetles might also oh, be spreading gosh, it. Yeah. So what's being, what kind of countermeasures are being taken? Oh man, we're, we're in kind of crisis mode in the state. Um, there was a, a big summit at the Capitol. Um, yeah, there is a, a five-year plan put together mm-hmm. and um, seed banking actually was designated as um, an important tool to combat yeah. abroad. Um, here at the National Tropical Botanical Garden, uh, we and others in the state also got a grant to collect and bank Ohia. So we had a big collecting and banking campaign. Hmm. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, there's, the, there's all kinds of testing that's going on. So it's actually the, the wilt is a little bit easier to detect. It's in the hardwood, so you kind of have to shave off some of the bark. But then the canker is much harder because it's a localized infection. Hmm. Yeah, and so there's testing set up on Hawaii Island and uh, there's helicopter surveys that people do. And so if they mm-hmm. see suspect trees, there's drone surveys. Um, so if they see suspect trees from the air, they can then go in and sample. They used to fell and tarp the trees, but I don't think they're doing that anymore. Hmm. Um, yeah. Just trying to get them out of the area. They were. Much. Yeah. Yeah. But there's, there's five things that you can do. If you look online, there's uh, yeah. Don't transport Ohia clean mm-hmm. your gear even if you're just hiking in the forest while you're here, just you know, clean the mud off your shoes and then spray your shoes with alcohol mm. before you set out. Um, also do that when you come back, too. Um, mm. You know, your gear, disinfect it. Yeah, if you're uh, driving in the forest, wash the undercarriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Those kind of infections are, um, I mean, it's, <laughs> I, had, I hesitate to compare it, but boxwood blight is, similarly so easy to spread and mm. seems like a lot of the a lot of the similar um i don't think anybody's seed banking boxwood because it's not i don't know that one what is the genus it's, uh it's a buxus it's just a okay. it's like a really famous landscaping super common uh, um ornamental like basically all the hedges in england are boxwood oh interesting um but here um and actually where i'm working right now there's it's just spreading around there's all these like hundred year old boxwood trees about about to die (laughs) which i could personally care less i mean they're not like an important species they're not from around there you know Uh, um hmm. and you know i don't i don't see anything bad about having um some wealthy people's estates shaken up a little bit (laughs) um yeah that's that's um that's really that's sad but i feel like that's you know working in conservation you probably have to get really good at managing the like constant disappointment and sense of urgency. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So a former supervisor and mentor 
uh, in plant conservation told me that you have to be an internal optimist to right. do this job because um, there's a lot of failures. Um, but yeah, that just means that you celebrate the few successes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, you've been seed banking Ohia seeds. Yeah, that's actually, yeah, I want to say that. So um, because our focus is on the rare and imperiled species of conservation importance, mm-hmm. um, before this big campaign, we didn't have very many Ohia collections. Wow. Um, so before like 2016-ish, that's... Yeah, I think 2017 to 18 or 19 was the big was a big push. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, um, yeah, so we, we collected, I don't know, couple like a dozen or more million uh seeds and then we reciprocated those with other seed banks Mm -hmm. uh half of them and then kept uh, or i guess two-thirds of them and then kept a third on site and i think we have about eight million um still here yeah eight or nine million Mm -hmm. on site and then the rest are distributed to other seed banks okay yeah but then the oldest collections we had i want to say the oldest one was from 2006 Mm -hmm. maybe and um, we didn't see um, any loss of viability in that accession compared to um, like a bunch of our freshly um, harvested accessions or collections. Yeah. Is anybody um, doing any work trying to? Um, I'm thinking of chestnuts and in in yeah the resistance. mainland yeah resistance yeah, and, and ash trees too. Um, oh yeah, they're just. Yeah. seem to be some trees that are able for whatever reason to push through, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yes, they definitely are. And so, yeah. So I should say that it's not just one species that we have here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's um, 13 or 14 different taxa. So species and varieties. Okay. Uh, and at uh, UH Hilo, they're doing resistance testing. And so that's one of the things. So, yeah, so normally when you would collect from a common species, you would uh, try to get representative genetic diversity from mm-hmm. a population. Um, so that means going to many different individual uh, moms right. and, and aggregating all those seeds. But that's what we're usually not doing in this case, um, because what if one of those trees does have resistance? So we're treating oh, Ohia collections much like we're treating rare plant collections where we're keeping maternal lines separate. Uh, so wow. we're collecting from separate moms. Yeah. And then, you know, the best GPS in the world isn't going to tell you this tree. So we're tagging the tree in the forest as well mm-hmm. uh, and giving it a unique identifier so that if resistance is identified, we can go back to that actual mom in the forest. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. In, in like Virginia with the ash, um, emerald ash borer and other other things spread around people will tend to just see that their ash trees are looking bad or their chestnuts are looking bad and then cut them all down preemptively Mm. and there was a big push i don't know when this was but somebody in like the forestry department realized like we're probably cutting out any hope that we have of discovering resistance or you know what i mean finding resistant strains of this so um yeah they I, I think people are still kind of just cutting them down when they look bad, mm. which is like a standard, just like right. landscaping aesthetic that ah. we could do without. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So um, are there any other uh, 
seed collections that you want to talk about? Like anything you talked about some other rare plants that you're keeping maternally distinct? Oh, uh, well, all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Except for, yeah. Except for some of the common like workhorse restoration species, everything else is, Mm -hmm. um, maternal lines are kept separate, which means ours, which means that our, our seed collections are very small Mm -hmm. in number. Yeah. So yeah, they would have to be right. Yeah. 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 So that's interesting then, right? Because then if they're under a hundred seeds, I usually don't do anything to them. We just black box them. Mm-hmm. So we don't know what their viability is mm-hmm. um, initially or even through time. You know, if there's right around a hundred seeds, I'll at least maybe try to do initial viability. So we have some idea of the initial health of the collection, mm-hmm. but then I usually won't do any, any downstream testing. So everything, yeah, everything gets like smaller, right? Because if you do this kind of testing, then you risk testing them to death. Right. Yeah. yeah. Is there a limit uh, to how many times you can pull them out and run non-destructive viability tests on them? Um, yeah. So probably depends though. I'm guessing. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. The, the problem is that our, our, so the, the test that we use is the germination test. It's the most robust and it tells us what we're interested in, which is, will the seed make a plant? Sure. Um, um, but because we have uh, this great conservation nursery at our same institution, um, what we'll do is we'll transplant the little uh, seedlings, usually when just the radical has emerged, mm-hmm. and we'll transplant them into a new Petri dish, and then um, we'll hand those off to our conservation nursery. And then our nursery manager uh, and staff will propagate those and uh, baby them and turn them into plants when they can. Okay. So that's really cool, but it's also a little bit unique. Uh, most seed labs, they just discard their seedlings. Yeah. Well, could could you sometimes pull them out and, and do what you just described, but grow them out as like a seed crop and then harvest more seed from them? I, I, that's my dream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my dream. Uh, there are there are people in the state who, who are, are looking to push for seed orchards, but it's something that's really oh, missing. Cool. Yeah. So if you, okay, so we talked about seeds of success earlier. If you... Uh, if you were to just do a, like an image search for seeds of success, one of the first images that would come up is this native plant material development cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it starts with seed collection and goes through all the process, banking, but then there's like um, field estab- establishment and amplification, mm. uh, right? And so... And that's the process of growing them out for more seed. Yes. Then, yeah. yeah. Um, and so that would be really cool. Um that's one thing that's missing, but even just having a seed orchard uh, is, is also missing. Yeah. But hopefully we're, there's people in the state who are pushing for that, but that's something that would be great. Yeah. Would that be something that you would undertake here or that would probably be in the nur- nursery or something like that? Yeah. I don't know. So we're, we're a pretty big organization, right? We have mm. um, five gardens uh, on two oceans, but we're not farmers though, right? So we don't sure. have the expertise. Yeah. Um, so it'd probably be in partnership, but probably not here. Hmm. I think just getting like local farmers interested in producing native plants um, mm-hmm. would be super cool. And then just partnering. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've been driving around, but you've seen all these fallow fields mm-hmm. um, that used to be sugar, sugar cane. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, and so it'd be really cool to see those producing native plants. Yes, it would much cooler than sugar cane <laughs> right and there is no sugar uh on the island anymore not um at that scale really so, is that um was that is that like a conservation 
mandate or, or no. what, what's the why why is that i think it's just economy it's just cheaper to do it somewhere else now. i think that's what it is well i mean take them take it where you can get it i guess <laughs> that's, that's good for for here it's but. yeah i mean the the lowlands you, you know they've already been destroyed um mm -hmm. so driving around um you probably didn't see any native plants even though this is the garden island and people you know yeah come here it's so lush you know and it is you know it's it's very it lush and it's very green and it is the garden island um but when you're driving around on the highway you're probably not seeing so many native plants yeah that's, there are some sprinkled about but what yeah. what do you think i would have seen out there maybe the is it lawai or levi fern uh yes but you probably didn't see the native one Oh, there's a non-native one. <laughs> yeah, is the one that's everywhere like a, an ornamental one? I or think something? that one is the non-native ornamental one. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, but yeah, you maybe would have seen Hala uh, uh -huh. or Pandanus tectorius. Okay. Um, and you maybe would have seen Koa, uh, Acacia Koa. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, I don't know what else maybe you would have seen driving around. So a lot of these other plants are either escaped landscaping plants or they're imported from somewhere else yeah either intentionally or unintentionally yeah yeah i imagine a lot of that so I'm, I'm not clear on this but i was talking to a guy on the plane who was telling me about how all these islands used to be owned and you know extractively farmed by dole like dole for for pineapples and sugarcane basically is that yeah that's when a lot of the destruction happened right yeah um yeah yeah. Do you know any more about like the history of agriculture or? Well, um, I mean, as soon as humans uh, got here, um, they started farming, right? And meaning the, the Polynesians or the Micronesians who came here yeah. way before. Yeah. yeah. So they, so they came here with their uh, canoe, what we call the canoe plants or the Polynesian introduced plants. So these uh -huh. are plants, right? This is their botanical toolkit. Right, so if you go on a voyage of of this kind of epic proportions, you bring in your food, your medicine, your clothing, all of these things with you, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is about thirty mid thirties ish uh, number of what we call canoe plants. Mm -hmm. uh, and so these are things you've heard of, like ulu or breadfruit. Mm -hmm. um, sugar actually was one of them, mm -hmm. uh, or ko, uh, kalo or taro. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, some of the some of the ones you may have heard of. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, um, they also had a, a rat that had snuck aboard. Uh, and Classic. so, yeah, so they were able to, they had this traditional land management system um, called um, divisions called Ahupua. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is kind of divisions of labor. So, you know, you had your, your fishermen and your farmers and your uh, people that worked in the mountains and you all shared within your community mm -hmm. and uh, you all traded with each other and you could even trade between communities. So that all worked really well. Um, that system. Mm. Um, what did the rat bring? The rat brought the ability to eat native seeds and birds and eggs. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So it just became almost like a predator. Yeah. Yeah. So now we have um, three rats and a mouse uh, on the Island. Oh. Uh, we have mosquitoes and ants, um, mm -hmm. which we wouldn't have had. Uh, and we have a, uh, yeah, so we have about 1,500 species-ish in our native flora. And we also have about 1,500-ish uh, introduced species in mm. our flora. Wow. Uh, so it's about half and half. And some of, the, some of the really bad ones are like the strawberry guava uh -huh. and some melostomes. Um, yeah, albizia. Mm. 
the the predator pro this isn't exactly plant related but i guess ecology related like the the chickens that are here <laughs> and other things that i see make me think are there any hawks like what why are these chickens not being devoured because they don't seem particularly yeah. smart you know? right uh yeah so so um there's a hawaiian hawk one species but we don't have it on this island and it's quite rare okay um and but the other thing that we don't have on this island is mongoose uh, oh okay and, and then so, is that on the other hawaiian islands as a as a predator or? that's right okay yeah so this is a, a classic example of uh biocontrol gone wrong right where they brought the mongoose in to control the rats but um yeah the the rats are nocturnal and the and the and the mongoose are uh diurnal or something like that yeah so <laughs> yeah really bad but there's also examples of where uh biocontrol has worked like um so our native erythrina so we call it willy willy in other places they might call it coral bean mm -hmm. um, but we have one it's endemic and there is this wasp that was going through and it was just looking really bad for willy willy um it, it was like eating the the fruits or the seeds it or something was, yeah so it would parasitize the plant in some way and they weren't producing seeds or the plant was dying uh -huh. this is before i got here but they found a parasitoid wasp that would parasitize um the skull wasp and they introduced it and it and it went away and mm. so that oh wow was, that was an example of a biocontrol gone right yeah uh, it happens but yeah <laughs> so you can get both for sure yeah it always seems a little risky to me you know like right. release this thing into the yeah i mean you studied ecology enough to know it's you know got all these emergent properties and <laughs> it's unspeakably complex and malleable and changes in ways that I don't know if we'll ever really understand them, but we can sometimes learn to observe them and, and like pick up on patterns. I feel like, right. um, I feel like there's a lot of, speaking of biocontrol and those sort of attempts to influence this unspeakably complex and magnificent organism of ecology. Um, there's a bit of hubris a lot of times, you know, like I don't like this thing that I see here mm. in the surface or, or I feel bad about this or, or this has been identified as a problem according to some sort of rubric that, you know, those tend to change with time. And so what we're going to introduce something like a new species or, or try to eradicate a species or some such thing. Um, I feel like those kind of just tend to always end up the same way. It's like that sci-fi horror movie that you watch where it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, you know what's going to happen, but everybody seems to be unaware of it in the movie and they do it anyways. And then, <laughs> you know, they end up getting bit in the ass by it. Um, <laughs> do you see a lot of that going on here? Like, are you dealing a lot with the results of sort of failed biocontrols or, or trying to basically uh, clean up things that people did in the past? Well, yeah, there's a lot of uh, forestry decisions that were made in the early 1900s that were, yeah. that were going to be paying for kind of forever, probably. Yeah. Um, like logging and stuff like that or uh, logging. And I think the idea in the, in, the, in, in like the early 1900s, was that Hawaiian forests are weak and they need to be stabilized with oh these really hardy Australian species, oh eucalyptus and gravelia and the, you know, these Japanese pines and that kind of thing. Oh my God. Um, so 
Yeah, we're going to be paying for that one forever. Is it weak because there weren't enough hardwoods? Is that kind of? Yeah, yeah. I guess that. I guess that was the thinking. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's pretty silly looking back on it, but yeah. At the time, they thought they were doing the right thing. I guess. There's so many things like that. Like, um, I, I discovered that in the '50s, when in Virginia, anyways, when they would notice that a tree looked weak or had heart rot of some kind, you know, where the heartwood was compromised, they would drill a hole into it and fill the entire thing with concrete. What? To hold it up. What the heck? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So at work, there's a tree from that they did that to. It's like, apparently you can't sometimes don't know because they weren't marked or anything. So people will be trying to cut down a tree and their saw just gets destroyed. What the heck? Oh my gosh, that's crazy. I've never heard of that. I what I mean Whoa. what kind of logic brought them to that? <laughs> and it wasn't even that long ago, you know. Like, right. Um it really makes pushes me further and further that kind of stuff towards like non-interventionism, you know, like right. trying to collaborate more with what's going on rather than being like I see this problem and I'm going to fix it, you know. Right. Um do you do you, it seems like you're kind of working from a similar aesthetic. Do you get to work that way here and um, with the seed bank and in your program. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's one of the reasons you have a seed bank is um, to buy yourself time until we can have appropriately, appropriately managed habitat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so nothing that we do to the seeds will make them immortal, even when we use prior biotechnologies um, and, and, and freeze them in liquid nitrogen, say, mm-hmm. um, they will last uh, well, potentially they could last longer, but not, still not be immortal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, now is the time where we kind of have to figure out uh, exit strategies mm-hmm. for for all of these collections, all of these species, mm-hmm. right? So, um, on on those curves that we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. there's the there's the point where you with, want to withdraw the seeds. Uh, and either recollect or regenerate. So in a recollection interval, you go back out to that plant or that population and you recollect if it still exists, mm-hmm. um, uh, right? And then in a regeneration interval, it's the same time, you withdraw those seeds, propagate those seeds, um, but then you collect the yield from those seeds sure. um, to, to refresh the seed bank collection. So yeah, recollection is, is better, right? Because you're not selecting for anything unintentionally. Right, I guess um, with the regeneration, you might accidentally kind of be inbreeding some sort of weakness or something, right? You could, well, you you could be, um, but you could also be unintentionally selecting for seeds that oh, right. survive yeah. seed banking or that want to grow in greenhouse conditions. Right, yes, um, okay. Yeah, so you run that yeah. danger. But, of course, that's better than not doing it at all. Sure. Um, uh, yeah, and so, yeah, so if you look at the FAO standards, they say 85% of initial or maximum viability uh, is when that should be. And in Hawaii, we're talking about a 70%. Um, okay. So once, so another way to say that is once the collection has declined 30% from whatever it started off with, it should be recollected or regenerated. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. But that's like with, um, so you, have you heard of Alula or Brighamia and Cygnus? Mm-mm. It, it's like a poster child for plant conservation in, it's a Hawaiian species, but it's yeah, kind of been, yeah, it's like a 
poster child for plant conservation everywhere. Huh. Um, it is extinct in the wild. Mm-hmm. Um, so it used to be known from uh, Nepali, Haopu, and even uh, Niihau. And um, yeah, and so it's gone now. There was one plant left on Nepali, and they've tried to relocate it with drones, and yeah, it's not there. However, um, in the 90s, they started um, uh, hand, like, hand pollinating these things by repelling down ropes and then coming back and then collecting seeds. Mm. And so, um, yeah, so NTBG botanists um, got these seeds into collections in like the 90s mm-hmm. um, and, and maybe even before. Um, and then they started sharing. So gardens uh, all over the world uh, have this plant. You saw some when you came in, actually. Also, oh, really? And, and I'll show them to you. Was it the little yellow flower yes. right by the door? Yes. Oh, man, I noticed that. Yes. That's so funny. I looked at that plant, and I thought it was something else, and then I was like, oh, no, I don't recognize that one. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, so it's all over the world. And in, uh, I think, the Netherlands, it's propagated by, like, the tens of thousands as a houseplant. No way. And so it will never go extinct, uh, but it's extinct in the wild, and we don't have any habitat to put it back. Because that habitat that it came from is just just doesn't exist anymore, is it? Yeah. So there's there's a couple of protected areas that they maybe could go in, but there's there's like compounding problems. So we think sure. that perhaps it's lost its native pollinator, so we can put them uh, out, and then they'll yeah. just in these in these few protected areas, but then they just live their life and then yeah. die, right? Yeah. Um, Unless somebody comes by and pollinates them, right? Like, right. You'd have to do it manually and or then, something. And then, yeah, and then we don't know how the seeds were dispersed, so then we can collect the seeds and then put them back out. So it would be like very highly curated, manicured. You know, it would be like gardening, basically, not yeah, restoration. Yeah, it's really not in the environment at that point. Right. You're just sort of running an outdoor garden. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which, is, which is the risk with some of these things. Yeah. Right, so, so yeah. And I just, I keep coming back to there. There's so much um, <laughs> disappointment, you know, <laughs> thinking about the, the habitat yes, destruction and the, right. the pollinators so are going can, away. Exactly. And then there's climate change that compounds everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the, one of the things that we're, we're already kind of seeing is that, so I think we have six mosquitoes in the state. Uh, none of them are native. Mm-hmm. They carry avian pox and avian malaria. So our first forest birds are just quietly going extinct in the forest, like right now, mm-hmm. as we speak. Um, several species have gone extinct in our lifetimes Mm. and yeah so as it gets warmer uh, the mosquitoes are just marching up the mountains um oh wow so the the warming is also assisting with that yeah wow yeah crazy how they work hand in hand (laughs) yeah it's yeah so yeah With, with the brigamia you know it's you could say it's really disheartening um but if these people weren't repelling off of cliffs uh, in starting actually in the seventies, um, then it, the species would be extinct, extinct. Yeah. So you could you could look at it both ways. Sure. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. There's a <laughs> lot of yeah. There's a there's a way to get there. Yeah. Gosh. So the seed bank technology is essentially cooling and drying, right? Yeah, that's right. So that's that's kind of our, our tool. So what we do um, is, as I said before, we don't just freeze the seed because that's a good way to kill it. Right. Um, so we'll we'll desiccate or dry it first, um, and it turns out that that 
environment, the pre-storage environment, um, can have a lot to do with the overall longevity of the seed. Mm -hmm. um, so we do that in some way. Uh, and then we hermetically seal them um, in, a, in a package uh, that excludes light. And so that's good, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and then we cool them, right? Okay. So, um, yeah, so we've kind of locked in um, their, their moisture content. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, their equilibrium relative humidity will change because it's linked with temperature. But their moisture content is, is locked in um, uh, when they're hermetically sealed. Um, and then they go, well, so here they go into one of three different temperatures. So uh, positive five, mm -hmm. um, which is like your refrigerator, uh, negative 18 or negative 20, which is like your freezer. That's conventional seed banking temperatures. Mm -hmm. um, and then negative 80. Mm -hmm. uh, so negative wow. 80 has got a lot of attention when the Pfizer vaccine came out because that one had to be uh, stored at, at negative 80. Oh, okay. Um, but, and so they're really, so negative 80 freezers or ultra cold freezers, they're really common in the medical and well, and genetics labs too, mm -hmm. um, but uh, not so much for seed banking. Um, mm. So it's pretty new for seed banking. So, mm. um, yes. So one of the things that I'll be doing um, at the Q Millennium Seed Bank is this. As the Q Gardens is that what you're talking about in London? Yeah. Okay. So, cool. so the Millennium Seed Bank, it's 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 yeah, not uh, connected um, physically, geographically to to the main Q. Okay. Um, so it's. Yeah, it's this own thing that came about in 2000 um, with, I guess, lottery money. Um, but anyway, it's like when people think of a seed bank, um, well, yeah, when people think of a seed bank, I guess they think of the Svalbard Global Seed Vault. But when people think of a seed yeah, bank Yeah, that's the lab, one way up in, in the in, Arctic, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. in Spitsbergen, in Norway. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that is the one that I think of for sure. Yes. <laughs> it's a very striking image. Yes. Yeah, so it's falls barred. Uh, they don't do any of this kind of um, longevity testing stuff that we've been talking about. Mm. Um, so those are mostly all agricultural species, though, right? So those are mostly all orthodox. And so they have one storage condition, um, mm. dry and cold, and that's going to work great for uh, most of these agricultural species. Mm. Um, yeah, and it, it, yeah, so the Q Millennium Seed Bank, they're like a, yeah, real. So yeah, so yeah. Cumulative Seed Bank, they they do this longevity testing that we've been talking about. Okay, and, uh, they're a seed lab as well. Are there um, is there any tech? I'm not don't really know how this false bird one works, but um, is there any tech for seed banking that um, would be effective in the event of you know like a power supply or um, other sort of interruption you know like say like in a catastrophic event yeah sure so um yeah so i think you mentioned earlier we're we're inside of the juliet rice wickman botanical research center mm -hmm. which we lovingly refer to as the brc uh -huh. um and uh because this is the building with many of our collections including the herbarium the library uh the dna collection the carpological collection pollen site collection uh as well as the seed bank mm -hmm. um this whole building is on a backup generator. So in the event of a power outage, uh, the backup generator kicks on automatically, mm -hmm. providing continuous power. Nice. Um, yeah, so yes, so that's a good thing. Um, the other thing is that inside of each germination chamber, desiccation chamber, uh, and storage unit, uh, whatever the temperature, I have a wireless temperature and humidity sensors 
logging those climate conditions in real time on a cloud-based platform. Okay. So um, anywhere in the world, I can log in with my phone, a tablet, a computer, whatever, and I can see, oh, what is the real temperature of the negative 18? What is the real humidity of this mm-hmm. desiccation mm-hmm. chamber? Yeah. And then if something gets too hot or too cold or too wet or too dry, then I get an email and a text message, uh, and I can I can check it out and see what's happening. Can you like control it from from your iPad or no? Wherever? Oh, okay, that'd be cool. No, I cannot. No, I have to come in. <laughs> <laughs> and so this always happens like on a Friday evening, of course, or when I've left town. Yes, of course. Yeah, <laughs> that's just how things go. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I really was fascinated by the time that you spent. Well, just wet water marshlands yeah or cienega yeah um do you want to talk about any cool plant species you saw out there or um anything maybe that you learned from that time that um like ecology in yeah. terms of your ecological perspective right because i'm also interested in like what you yeah. have a lot of passion for this work and you this is a really niche thing that you're doing as you said um but you also have this much bigger background in in being in places like these marshlands and stuff so um i don't know what's the connection there do you yeah do you carry well, you're anything making, from you're making me times? think back now um yeah <laughs> i'm sorry so <laughs> that wasn't the goal <laughs> yes okay cool plant species yes there's a couple so um this was in this was in southern arizona so arizona actually has more native orchids than hawaii does uh, which Whoa, is interesting what? Yeah, American Samoa has like 101 native species, and Hawaii has three. Wow! Uh, and they're all all three of them are quite rare, as you might imagine. But in Arizona, they have like mid 30s um, ish native wow. orchid species. Um, yeah, and so one of them, Spiranthes dilatescens, is an orchid uh, endemic plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it it's only occurs in these in these cienegas, mm-hmm. um, and that's fairly listed endangered. Um, so that's a interesting plant to try to study because they have such a weird life cycle where, you know, the, the plant might be alive, but just not above ground. Yeah. Um, and so it's really hard to count them then. Mm, yeah. Then there's this other plant that's pretty cool. It's called Eryngium sparganophyllum. Eryngium? Yes. Eryngium. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or Arizona Eringo. Okay. And, um, we, ha- I grow an Eryngium in Virginia. Oh, cool. Eucafolium. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. This looks like that. Oh, cool. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. That's so, one of my favorite plants. Lock, it's so long cool. linear leaves. The yeah. plants like this big. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And it's got that um, kind of like spiky ball seed head thing. Not yes. seed head, but before yeah. the flower I think opens. It, I think yeah. this one's less spiky, but yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Really um, cool plant. Yeah. The super cool plant, right? Yeah. Well, this is another Cienega endemic plant. And uh, yeah, so this is in the APAC or like the carrot family. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Really cool plant in um, it's in the cienegas that they occur. Um, they can be pretty abundant, um, but of course, with uh, groundwater decline mm-hmm. and declining wetlands in general, this plant has also declined, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, for example, it's um, extirpated or extinct at its type locality. So the locality from which it was described, mm. it is extinct. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, so it's down. Um, from a handful, maybe half a dozen or so different locations, all Cienegas, of course, uh, down to just two um, two populations in Arizona and two populations in Mexico. Wow. Um, 
And that's it. And of course, as groundwater declines for cattle grazing, groundwater pumping, mining, mm-hmm. diversion for agriculture, um, diversion for cities, yeah, the plants are just, um, declining as well. Yeah. So it was one of the plants that was in some of my Cienegas that I studied for my master's, but then we also did a more uh, Eryngium direct uh, project. And so that, that paper came out recently. And since... Uh, the species has been federally listed endangered, hmm. um, which is kind of cool to have played a very small part in that. That's cool. Yeah. yeah congratulations. I mean, you got to yeah. take those wins where you get them, you know, <laughs> right. like, like you said. Yeah. Hey, folks, we're brought to you this week by Uncle Mom's Infomart up the family and steer them on down to Uncle Mom's for a variety of exciting savings. Bag of rats, $69.69. We got flute water and brain control cream and original bacon, off-white, and new Hawaiian excitement flavors. Bunker-ready groat cakes for the family at arms. Powdered nickels, by the tub. And we got bat flaps, bridge fasteners, and hole warmers for the backyard economist in your family. If you're feeling hungry for a good deal, uh... Dip a bucket into our double discount post-consumer recycling trough. And you can always trade in your shoes for a chance to win big at the state ceremonial scratch and lick. Trouble bubble maximum earnings hosted daily. So don't be a friend to strangers. Show your face around at Uncle Mom's Info Mart. Info Mart. Info Mart. Info Mart. Uh, located in Snakesboro, Hewitt Bluffs, and throughout the Tri-Color area all along the Warren Beast Highway. So thank you to Uncle Mom and his many cousins for supporting us. And now, back to the show. You were talking about the shrinking of oh, yeah. the, the, the habitat of this eryngium. Um, do you say eryngium or eryngium? Eryngium. Eryngium. Okay, good, that's what I say. Um, which makes me think of... Maybe I don't. I don't know the terms for this, but trying to think ahead and maybe get a, a step or two ahead of of some of these uh, changes that we're noticing in the climate and um, and changes that we're seeing happen. You know, for instance, because of the mosquitoes um, and the way that they're changing the environment. Right? It's not just the temperatures. Right? Um, do you have anything going in that vein where you're you're kind of thinking what kinds of plants? would it make sense to prioritize because of how we think the environment might be changing in the next, I don't know how many years, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not thinking along those lines. Um, cause I'm, I'm more along the lines thinking of what, what can, what can be banked, mm-hmm. uh, and, and how can I, and how can I bank the difficult ones and sure. just and just write off the the ones that we know, like the ones that are like 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 truly purely recalcitrant, mm-hmm. like yeah, just writing those off, just being like we're not even going to try, like or right, we just can't. So we can yeah. we can keep those in our living collections, yeah, um, right, um, but they just don't m- make sense to seed bank in that case, right. So we can yeah keep those in our living collections. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say that, uh, so there's this global strategy for plant conservation, if you've heard of that. It provides I have a, not. That's really, is, it, is that 
called that? Like global yeah, strategy yeah. For okay. the global strategy for plant conservation yeah, provides a, a framework for plant conservation, basically. Um, yes. Um, uh, Hawaii actually adapted uh, the global strategy for the Hawaii strategy for plant conservation. That that got a lot of press um, for how to adapt the global strategy regionally. Oh, okay. um, but anyway, either way, in the global and Hawaii strategy, um, yeah, uh, target eight of the global strategy um, states that um, you should have uh, 75% of rare species conserved ex situ uh, uh, in the country of origin. Okay. Um, and so, um, yeah, I guess that's that's kind of like a goal. Okay. Yeah. That, that just means seed banking them, the ex situ part? That's the easiest way. Yeah, yeah. They, call it, they call it the seed banking uh, they call it banking on nature, actually. Oh, Target. nice. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. do appreciate a good pun. <laughs> <laughs> right. But of course, you could have plants in the ground in a, in a garden or plants in a pot in a nursery as well. But Sure, but yeah. Yeah, we talked about how it's most efficient to do it in a bank. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was one of the questions that um, the other host had sent um, about adaptive radiation. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so... Okay. Yeah. Sweet. Uh, well, do you want to, is that phrased in a specific way or I can um, just talk about it? Are there any families, genera or species that seem like potential stock for adaptive radiation as environmental conditions change? Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't even, um, geez. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, yeah. I don't know. I'm thinking long-term, but geez, I don't know if I'm thinking that long-term. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's you know, pretty long. Hawaii is a great place to study um, adaptive radiation and speciation and mm. island biogeography, right? So people always uh, talk about the Hawaiian silver swords uh, for adaptive right. radiation. Right, yes. Yeah, um, I was reading about those so this So we, yeah, if you, have you gone up Kokei yet? Um, stop it. yeah, you stop at Iliao Loop, you can go see the Iliao, which is uh, Wilksia, Gymnothixium, uh-huh. which is a green sword. So it's in that silver sword alliance. Oh, cool. Um, and they are probably fruiting right now. Oh, cool. Um, so they're really cool plants. And as a plant nerd, a fellow plant nerd, you can see them. Which That sounds awesome. I always take my plant nerd friends uh, to go see these plants. Yes, but uh, so the, the Hawaiian um, lobiliads, um, so this is the Campanulaceae family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you know lobelia or mm-hmm. uh, bellflowers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah, so in Hawaii, um, we, we used to think it was a single immigration event uh, 13 million years ago, um, radiated into about 159 currently described taxa, mm. so species, subspecies, and varieties. Uh, so an even more spectacular radiation than the Hawaiian silver swords. Um, that's now um, contentious. It may have been two introductions. But hmm. yeah, so that's one of them, and that's one of them. Cool. Um, so six uh, different genera, um, five of which are endemic genera, uh-huh. the one not being Lobelia. And so it turns out that uh, this family um, has had the most extinctions uh, in it, uh, hmm. It is also the family with the most federally listed endangered species. Hmm. Uh, and it is the biggest family in the Hawaiian flora, which is interesting because you don't wow. see that in other places. It's also um, a family that exhibits this intermediate freeze-sensitive seed storage behavior that we are talking about earlier. Oh, really? Yeah. Cool. So, it's, so to me, all of those things combined, uh, it makes for a really interesting group to study. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh, <man. laughs> so cool. I don't even know what else to say. That's just badass. Yeah. Is there a flora of of Hawaii? Like yes, a book. It's it's the two volume set right behind you there. Oh, cool. I I wasn't sure if that had been. Um... There's a website hosted by the Smithsonian right now. Uh-huh. It's a nice um, checklist with some descriptions, but there's mm-hmm. no keys. Um, so the the Richton flora is is still the best. Okay. But um, yeah, so Bishop Museum and others are looking to do kind of an online floor that has lucid keys in it, mm-hmm. uh, right? So you can click stuff, and as you click around, your species pool decreases. Oh, um, man, that would be so neat. Yeah, so they're, they're working on something like that, which would be super cool. Yeah. But until then, it's the, it's the two-volume set. Okay, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Wagner yeah. and others. Do you have any idea where I could find, like, a, like, I don't know, some kind of field guide type book to carry around with me while we're hiking around? Yeah. A lot of the times I'm looking around just like. Yeah. Yeah. So what you don't want to take with you is the two volumes. No, right. I don't want uh, that. You don't want to take that. <laughs> yeah. So I, maybe the best place to go um, is our visitor center in okay. Kwaipu. Uh, you can get something from there. Okay. Um, also, if you go up Koke'e, there's a, a museum and they sell all the guidebooks. So the plant ones okay. and bird ones. And there's a, there's a, there's a bird one that's specific to this island. Um, so that would be probably the one to get. And then the other one you might want is, I think it's called like Wayside Plants of Hawaii or something. Uh-huh. It's, so it's things, um, native and non-native, that you would commonly see on trails. Okay. And it's very thin and, and, and little. Yeah. It makes oh, that good, sounds perfect. Yeah. yeah. Slide it into the backpack. Like, it makes a, good, makes a good little fill guide. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Um, nice. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, fungal interactions too if there's anything um yeah i, I guess I, I don't i hadn't seen a lot of like the fruiting bodies of the mushrooms around, mm, um yeah right now i don't know yeah they're much about that yeah they're around yeah um we have this really cool one i don't think it's native i actually don't know but it's the stinkhorn mushroom oh yeah and other places do those things look so cool is that the one that looks kind of like a um like a dog a dog's um no this looks like um an alien that wants to suck you into it oh does it have the tentacles like the red tentacles yes yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, those are so cool yeah uh those are around those are called um and they smell bad squid squid something oh cool i think the common name one of the names was squid something we have something i'm not sure if it's the same one but it looks real similar to that where it, it just looks like yeah, tentacles reaching up from the underworld or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what these look like. Think horribly. The first time I saw them, I was like, "Cool!" and picked it up. <laughs> so the answer is yes. Um, so we have these three orchid species I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. They're all terrestrial, mm-hmm. um, and so yeah, they likely have some kind of mycorrhizal symbiont happening. Right. Um, are they are they like obligate microtrophs? Like they have to have a. In exchange with a with a mycorrhizae, I I suspect so. Yeah, I've mm. tried to germinate them in the lab, um, in sterile media, and I get nothing. Oh really? Yeah, one of yeah. one or one or two of the spe- one or two of the three species. Mm. Yeah, and I've and I've just got nothing. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah, um, but so one of our native gardenias, Gardenia rumii. Mm. Um, one of my fellow PhD students at University of Copenhagen, um, he's the director of Kahanu Garden on Maui. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, also a very different garden. Uh, you get to know. Um, but yeah, so he's interested in arbuscular mycorrhizae. Oh, cool! I was, I didn't want to ask about that specifically because <laughs> I thought it was too niche, but. I think those are so cool. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So his whole PhD um, is, wow, is really it's just focusing. about that. Holy shit. Yeah. Different, different aspects. Um, so when we go into the lab, uh, I'll show you. I have some seeds that um, uh, are, so, are sown sterile. We, so in the lab here, um, we mostly don't uh, sow our seeds sterile. Yeah. So we sow them out in the open air, um, touching them, breathing on them, mm. and... And we really don't have a problem with, and we sow them uh, mostly on uh, seed germination paper. Mm -hmm. And so we mostly don't have a problem with fungus mm -hmm. um, and we don't see bacteria uh, on them. And so what will happen, you know, what will happen is, yeah, it's all kind of by design. So as, oh, I should say a seed is a baby plant in a box with its lunch. <laughs> um, one of my seed heroes um, said that, Carol Baskin. Thank you. Yes. So the so the seed, uh, yeah. So the, so what did I say? A seed is a baby plant in a box with its lunch. Mm -hmm. So the box is the seed coat. Its lunch is the endosperm, and mm -hmm. the baby plant is the embryo. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, yeah. So we sow all these things in the open air, and you might get one or two seeds um, that turn into like little fur balls. They're totally covered in fungus. And yeah. so you know that that whole Petri dish and the surfaces of the other seeds are all covered in spores, uh, but they're fine. They're totally mm. fine. Um, and so, yeah, those seeds probably weren't very healthy to begin with, or mm -hmm. maybe it was just an empty seed, uh, no embryo, no mm -hmm. baby plant, um, or just not very healthy to begin with anyway. Um, yes. So, yeah. Anyway, so with um, Mike's uh, Gardenia rimii, um, yeah, we have some that we, that we sown sterile so that he can have, um, sterile seedlings to use in some of his experiments. Okay. Yeah. With, and he also has some stones. With the too. AMF, like he wants to have sterile seeds. So, so he he's, can... yeah. So he's, yeah, you'll have to talk to him about it cause it's over my head. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's done these trap cultures things where he's tried to amplify the amount of arbuscular mycorrhizae. Mm. Um, and then, so he's like going to inoculate a, in a some. environment, like. Yeah, like a nursery environment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And uh, yeah, like a lab environment. And um, yeah. And um, yeah, so he'll inoculate some and, and not others. And mm. yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was reading, um, I had COVID not that long ago. Oh, like yeah, me too. Two months ago or something. Yeah. It sucked, but I was laying around for a few days just reading. Uh, about whatever interested me. And one day I think I read all, all about this plant we have at our house called the rattlesnake fern, okay, which is an obligate my, mycotroph. Is it a, oh, okay. Is, is that a selaginella or no? No, I'm blanking on the, um, that's okay. On the Latin name. I won't know it anyway. Oh my don't gosh. Make seeds, I know? can't believe I, I'm, it must be because I learned about it while I was, while I had COVID. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, it was, I was reading about how it's impossible to, Nobody's ever had any success like with those orchids you're talking about at germinating it in sterile conditions or not in the soil because uh, it seems like even from like the moment of germination it it needs to be making exchanges through that hyphal network you know with the mycorrhizae. Um, I just think that's really freaking cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think these are the opposite. Well, they were they will germinate and make saplings, but then don't want to do anything after that. Really? Yeah. So they just chill, but they don't. Do any reproductive activities or anything like that? Yeah, no. 
I don't think so. They just die. Yeah. Wow. So weird. See, that's yeah. the kind of stuff and it's that, endangered. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff that makes me just really question lots of biointerventions. You know, it's like how much, how many other things like that might there be that we just haven't observed yet? You know, yeah. um, I, I think, yeah, I think the answer is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you heard about these? So uh, one of the other consequences of warming climate changes is, is people uh, is like things falling out of the permafrost. Mm, yeah. Um, and then there's, there's been these instances of, I think fungi and seeds and bacteria oh. as well, all basically coming out of the permafrost. Okay. Um, I've, I've heard about the one was it in Siberia. I forget the species, yes. but it was a seed um, that they got to germinate after some ridiculously long period yeah, of time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you think about it, those are the right kind of conditions, right? For an, for an orthodox species. Yeah. It had to be orthodox. Right? Dry right? and yeah. dry and frozen. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, probably really dry and really frozen. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's, it's super cool. Yeah. Super cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I wonder. Yeah. There's, it reminds me too of, um, uh, Methuselah. Uh-huh. Do you know Methuselah? From the Bible. Um, namesake. Yes. Yes. So, um, yeah. So is this date palm, right? So like the date, the same species oh. that we would eat and, yeah. Okay. So there is this, I'll see if I can get this right. Temple of Hassad or Masad or something in somewhere in the Middle East or something anyway. And it was this basically fortress that had been there forever. Um, but then the invading, it was under siege by the invading army and the invading army got this great idea to like pile sand up to get over the wall. Um, and hmm. so the defending army was like, or, or the def- defending people were like, okay, the writing's on the wall. And so they set fire to their storehouses um, so that the, you know, when the army came in, they wouldn't have anything to eat. Right. Mm. So self-destruct, I guess. Anyway. Yeah. So, okay. So fast forward about 2000 years and, um, the, um, uh, there's an exhibit in a museum, uh, including some of these, um, dates, uh, or these date seeds. Right. And so from that, yeah, that fortress, from that fortress. Yeah. yeah. And so someone who's not an archeologist thought, Hey, I wonder if those seeds will germinate. And so they, they, you know, took a handful and one germinated. Um, so again, we have the right kind of conditions, right? We're in a desert, so we're really dry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're excluding predation, predators. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's not going to be frozen, or maybe it is, I don't even know. But it's going to be cool at least. But again, that doesn't matter as much as it being dry. Mm. So anyway, yeah, so one germinated. Um, and um, so they're diaceous, so... Um, uh, male bits and female bits on separate mm-hmm. plants, and um, and it was and they named it Methuselah. That was funny. Yeah, I think I did hear about that because it was so old. Like, right? <laughs> yeah, right. That's cool. I wonder if the fire had anything to do with that too. Right? Like, the, did they scarify the seed somehow? Well, you know, maybe, but that probably wouldn't lend well lend well to longevity. Then, oh, that, um, right, that would make it germinate. Yeah, right. And yeah, that's right. I hadn't thought of that. But so then, yeah, so then, and I think that was a boy. And so then they um, took other seeds from that site and other sites um, from that same time period. Mm-hmm. And then they germinated those and they got like another handful of plants to germinate mm. and um, boys and girls. And so they could um, cross pollinate them, but 
um, apparently they don't breed true or you have to vegetatively to, to get that exact variety um, yeah you could they couldn't you can't bring back that exact variety if you yeah. cross it. but anyway yeah. it's super cool yeah that is really cool. yeah and just a really interesting example because so palms are the family Ericaceae, mm-hmm. and in Hawaii we have one native genus um, of palm, uh, Prochardia palm, uh, Loulu is the Hawaiian name, and um, we think that they are they're not quite recalcitrant, but we kind of treat them as recalcitrant because the seeds are big, and um, but we think they're desiccation intermediate and also um, freeze sensitive, mm. um, and so that we just yeah. Since we can't really dry them like we want to, we just we treat them like the recalcitrant. Anyway, um, yeah, but then here we have this example of extreme longevity in the yeah. same family. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. I don't know. I wouldn't want to, like, jump the gun or anything. But if you're down to talk about what you're working on for your doctorate. Yeah, um, sure. Then... Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, so it, it's, it's, I guess, um, broadly... Um, conservation seed physiology in the Hawaiian flora. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, yeah, so that's, that's the kind of theme that brings it all together. Yeah, so it's all conservation seed physiology mm-hmm. and, and all in the Hawaiian flora. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we did one project um, where we looked to see if the herbarium, you know, an herbarium is a repository for pressed plant specimens it's the way people have been preserving plants for, okay. since people have been preserving plants. Preserving them growing, right? Like uh, No, so it's, it's dead plants. Oh, uh, no way. No, so yeah. I, didn't, I had so, no idea. That's, oh, okay. I, yeah. yeah, so if you've ever taken a, a flower and pressed it in a book yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, to kind of preserve oh, like it. Oh, literally, literally pressed. Yes. I thought you were no. saying repressed. I was like. No. Like, <laughs> no, like you squash it. <laughs> okay, gotcha. You squash yeah. the plant. Squash them and dry them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So we're a, rep- a repository for the, um, these dried pressed plant specimens is, a, uh, is an herbarium. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah. And so, yeah, a couple of people had this idea to, to look at, um, extinct species, um, to see if herbaria could be overlooked repositories, um, for viable seeds. Um, oh, wow. And like so the seeds just got pressed in yeah. on accident. No, on purpose. Oh, on purpose. Okay. On purpose. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because you want your you want your specimen to be both representative but also diagnostic, mm. right? So having reproductive parts in your specimen, um, not always, but in most cases, is is key. Mm. I made a pun. Um, it's okay. Wait, wait, um, wait, wait, wait. It's okay. What was the pun? I didn't mean to, but it came out anyway. Yeah, because you use a dichotomous key to key out the plant. Oh, anyway. Okay, that's good. Yeah. I'm glad we went anyway. back to it though. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. So usually you have uh, flowers and fruit. Uh, you have flowers or fruit or, or, or both. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so yeah, actually I did this a couple of years ago. I mentioned to an intern uh, about these cool projects and she's like, oh, that's cool. We should do that. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, rapid ohia death is this big new thing. Let's do it with ohia. Uh, and so we did. Um, and so we harvested from a, a chrono sequence going back, I think to the seventies or something uh, only, um, and we harvested of, you know, several thousand seeds mm-hmm. and not one seed germinated. Um, so this is interesting because again, the seeds are orthodox. Um, but it also again, they're not likely to persist for long periods of time. 
um, mm-hmm. in the soil seeping. And the herbarium is not optimal conditions, mm-hmm. right? Um, they are not hermetically sealed. Um, yeah, they go through a, a drying process, but then they go through a freezing process after that um, well. without being hermetically sealed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, yeah, so we tested for all that. And they could actually make it through that process. Um, but, yeah, just so it was mostly time that was in. Anyway, so, um, yeah, so we did another project where, um, okay, so in, uh, okay, so in Hawaii, for plants with fewer than 50 individuals remaining in the wild, um, we have a special um, group that manages those species called the Plant Extinction Prevention Program, mm. or PEP. Yeah, and so they deal with um, species with fewer than 50 individuals remaining in the wild. Now, anywhere else in the world, you know, plants or animals, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they get down to a few thousand and people start freaking out. And so here, yeah, we have a whole organization that deals with these fewer than 50. Anyway, mm-hmm. so um, on this island, we have like 80, low 80s uh, number of mm-hmm. those pep species. And so we went through our herbarium, which is upstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, all of the, and the, those were our target species, is those um, low 80s pep species. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we ended up looking at um, like 1,200 specimens, 1,200 sheets. Um, but uh, we're only able to harvest seeds from 134 of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was because, um, yeah, maybe all the seeds went to propagation or they were collected when they were in flower and not fruiting or, mm-hmm. or different things. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're still able to get 2,000 seeds from those um, 134 specimens. Uh, and, uh, but only one seed germinated. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, so these types of studies have been likened to finding needles in a haystack. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> if you don't look through the haystacks, you're not going to find the needles. So these things sure. should be done sooner than later. Sure. Uh, yeah. If you're thinking about doing it, it's just going to be even less viable potentially, right? Like exactly. the, the more time goes by, the less likely you are to find a needle. Like, yes, exactly. That's exactly right. Turn into hay. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. It'll get rusted and, and disintegrate. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, yeah, so that's one project. Um, another project is, um, when COVID hit, um, and we had limited access to the lab, um, we had all these data from the OHIA collections that I had mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we said, Hey, um, what if there's a correlation with initial viability? Cause we get initial viability of everything that comes in, especially with OHIA that produce, you know, that, you know, reasonable collections are, you know, tens to hundreds of thousands of seeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can definitely do initial viability on those. And so we're like, oh, what if there's um, a correlation with environmental variables or, or seed zone um, with initial viability? Mm. And so, yeah, so, the, so a seed zone, yeah, we'll just briefly say a seed zone um, is an area of which uh, you can take seeds out of that species and then you could put um, that same seeds back in anywhere else in that same area mm-hmm. uh, with a low likelihood of the seeds being maladapted to their environment. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So they've done this for North America. They base them on things that are important for plant hardiness zones mm-hmm. and then ecoregions. And they mash those things together and you get a seed zone. And yeah, they did that for um, the Hawaiian islands. Um, but we were looking at the one for Kauai and it, um, you know, we have these botanists that have had like boots on the ground in the forest for 40 years and it wasn't mm-hmm. making sense to them. So, 
our GIS guy and our um, island botanist that works for the state um, mm-hmm. and a couple and our conservation biologist and I we we kind of um, we kind of defined our own based on these same things. Mm. Um, yeah. Wow, anyway. Cool. Anyway. Yeah. So um, yeah, it turned out that there was no correlation with any environmental variable. And uh, we use these 19 classic bioclimatic variables, mm-hmm. um, and, but there was no correlation with any of those. Uh, but there was with seed zone, um, with one seed zone um, being a little bit lower and one seed zone being a little bit higher. Hmm. Um, and so there's all kinds of, we don't, we don't know exactly the mechanism of why. Yeah. That is, it could be due to some, of, some different things. Um, but the upshot is that um, these routinely collected seed bank data uh, can be repurposed for other conservation purposes. Oh, cool. Uh, which is kind of cool. Yeah. That is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's another project. So, yeah, another project. Okay, so we, we've, up until now, pretty much only talked about, like, longevity and, and storage behavior. Yes. Um, but I will say that in order to answer all those questions, um, we have to know how to germinate them. Yeah. And so a lot of times I'll ask those questions first, right? About so, germination. Yeah. yeah. So all seeds need four things to uh, germinate. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably know what they are, right? So it's uh, water uh, and uh, the optimal temperature window, um, light, dark, or light and dark, um, and then gases. So usually oxygen, unless we're talking about a submerged aquatic or something. Um, so if seeds aren't getting those things, we call those quiescent, mm-hmm. uh, right? So these um, cacao seeds are probably not going to germinate um, because they're not wet, right? Mm. Um, there, so we call that quiescent. But if the seeds are getting all of those things um, optimally, and they still don't germinate within a reasonable period of time, like thirty days, mm-hmm. uh, then we call those dormant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's a, so yeah, so that's a distinction. So you could have seeds that are non-dormant um, and seeds that are dormant, and then there's five classes of dormancy um, plus oh. non-dormancy, and then several different subclasses, types, and levels uh, beyond that. Wow. And yeah, I'll show you, I'll show you my autographed book from one of my seed heroes later, I guess. That's amazing. I I did not know about this level of granularity here. I mean, I'm always like, (laughs) Ooh, another pun. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, Nice, man. We just keep rolling out the hits. (laughs) That's so cool, man. I, yeah. Continue. Um, yeah. So yeah. So another project is we looked at um, Brighamia, and this there's two species in the genus: it's Cygnus, which was the Kauai one, and then um, Brachii, which is the Maui Nui mm-hmm. um, species. And that one, um, we think there's like ten individuals left in the wild, remaining um, clinging on the cliffs of mm-hmm. Molokai. Ten individuals total. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's what they're saying. Um, and yeah, and so we looked at the optimal germination requirements uh, and dormancy class of that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, you probably know um, something about the dormancy classes, even if you didn't know the names. So I, I, I love drawing this on the whiteboard. Um, oh, okay. We'll, but, we'll have the listeners get their whiteboards out oh my um, and follow but, along with that you. That would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very visual. I love the whiteboard so much. Oh, oh man, this is the wrong medium. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's me. I need to be able to convey these ideas without a whiteboard, right? It's cool. I can see the whiteboard. So, we you can, know. Yeah. We can, yeah, I can show you. Um, there is no whiteboard, just for all you listeners out there. <laughs> um, yeah. So we could, we could go through them quickly or not. Um, yeah. I, would love to, I would love to go through them. Okay. Let's try to do this. Okay. Yeah. 
What's something you've you've done to a seed to try to get it to germinate? Uh, put it in the fridge or the freezer. Okay, you put it in the fridge or the freezer. Okay. Um, so um, there's a class of dormancy called physiological dormancy, um, and this one and has it's it has the most uh, subclasses, types, and levels uh, beyond it. But basically, what's happening is that over time there is a decrease in chemical inhibitors. Uh, and hmm. an increase in chemical promoters, okay? Um, and so, um, yeah, and so at the end of that time, it's no longer dormant. Um, and so you might be able to get around uh, these things by, you could be leaching, and so a lot of times, yeah, the chemical inhibitors, there's abscisic acid, uh, hmm. and chemical promoters could be things like gibberellic acid, KNO3, mm -hmm. uh, uh, liquid smoke, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, those types of things. Um, not an exhaustive list, listeners. Like liquid um, smoke, like the culinary ingredient? Yeah, you can use, yeah, people make like smoke, like fake smoke to germinate seeds, but you could also use, you go to the grocery store and buy liquid smoke off the shelf and use that too. No way. Yeah, if that's, that's the thing. That's crazy. It is great. Yeah, and interestingly, there's what? there's been some studies that have shown that um, seeds will respond um, to um, fire. So like... Um, like liquid smoke or those carotenoids that's in smoke, um, even in non-fire adapted species, hmm. uh, which is interesting. Anyway, so it's the smoke. It's like the carotenoids uh, in smoke. I think. Wow. So I always assumed it was like a, a temperature thing. Okay, like we'll heat. go to that. We'll get to that in a second. Okay, all right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but also um, overwintering or oversummering. So cold stratification or right. warm stratification or in extreme cases, cold, warm, cold or warm, cold, warm. Um, but yeah, in temperate areas, it's going to be usually cold stratification. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so that's actually what you're doing is you're breaking physiological dormancy mm -hmm. uh, when you're when you're cold stratifying. You put your seeds um, imbibed wet um, in the fridge. Um yeah, you're hmm. you're cold stratifying them and you're breaking physiological dormancy. Interesting. Yes. Okay. What's wow. Some, okay. What's something else that you've done to a seed? Uh, scratch it. You've scratched it. Okay. Yeah. So uh, there's a class called physical dormancy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now the seed uh, has a water impermeable seed coat, uh, and somewhere on that seed coat, there's a layer of tightly packed palisade cells. That's the water gap. Hmm. Uh, and in nature, um, that would open in some way. Uh, dry heat, uh, like from a fire, mm -hmm. could be one. Okay. Um, and um, could be how they're uh, dispersed. Um, but a lot of times it's just going to be soil particles um, moving over it is going to erode the seed coat. Mm. Yeah. Um, yes. So it could be, well, I'll get to that in a second. Anyway, <laughs> yes. So you can bypass that with mechanical or chemical scarification, right? So mm -hmm. if you scratched it, um, that's mechanical scarification. You've bypassed that water impermeable seed coat. The seed can now imbibe, hmm. um, right? And so um, that's kind of easy to measure because what you can do is you can scratch some and not scratch others, and then measure imbibition over time. Uh, and like how can, much water they soak up? Is yes, that, yeah. and you can do that easily because as they imbibe or not, they will get heavier or not, and so hmm. you can just weigh the seeds. Oh wow! Yeah. Huh. And pair it with the germination test, of course. But right. But that's actually. The smoking gun is not germination. The smoking gun is imbibition. Mm. Yeah. The liquid um, smoking gun. The, yeah, uh. in that one. <laughs> um, 
Yes. Okay. Uh, then you can have another one. Um, do you ever have one that just tickle, it takes a really long time? Yeah, I planted some ginseng seeds. And okay. Yeah. They're taking forever. Yeah. I'm so not I don't, sure. I don't know that one off the top of my head, but we can look it up. Um, but in some species, at seed maturity, uh, embryos can be uh, either undifferentiated, that's like orchid species, or uh, differentiated um, uh, yet. Um, um, what is the word? Yeah, not developed. Yeah, hmm. differentiated but undeveloped, right? At seed maturity, right? So if you cut these seeds open uh, and you look at their embryo, they have a little embryo, mm-hmm. and that's a clue. But what happens is that over time, um, um, so you imbibe the seeds, you water the seeds, and over time, the embryo elongates inside the seed. So, this, so the seeds... Um, size doesn't change, of course. Right. But the embryo inside the seed elongates. Hmm. Um, yeah, before the radical emerges. The so radical is the embryonic root, and that's uh-huh. uh, in, the, in in a lot of species, but not all. That's the first thing to emerge, is that that radical. Um, so some seeds will take a longer time to stretch out inside the shell before they start to grow visibly on the outside. But that's all part of the germination, right? Uh, so that's morphological dormancy. Oh, oh, cool. Yeah. Another kind. Morphological dormancy. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So at sea maturity, um, embryos are underdeveloped and just need time to grow. Hmm. Okay. So now you can get combinations of these. So if you have the thing that you have to scratch them and um, the thing that you have to cold stratify them, um, that's combinational dormancy hmm. uh, or PY plus PD. And then if you have the thing we have to cold stratify them or however you're going to, or liquid smoke or however you're going to do it, um, plus the undeveloped embryos, um, that's morphophysiological dormancy. Okay. Uh, and then you can have non-dormancy as well. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I yet did not know. <laughs> so you're saying there are there subclasses within those? Yes. And subclasses within like the combinational dormancy or, or just subclasses uh, within the three e- morphological? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are those subclasses? How do you how do you differentiate um, those? Yeah, so I guess I guess they're yeah. So in physiological dormancy, um, let's see. There's uh, non-deep, deep, and intermediate, and then there's complex and simple, mm-hmm. and then yeah, it just yeah. So there's actually a key, a dichotomous key. Wow. Uh, for physiological and morphophysiological dormancy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So this is the work of Carol and Jerry Baskin a husband and wife team that have been okay. publishing on, on seed dormancy and biogeography and germination requirements for 50, over 50 years. That Carol Baskin sounds really familiar. That I love name. She's quite an amazing person. I'm, I'm wondering where I m- might have run into her before. She's, yeah, when, um, yeah, I've seen her, yeah, she's answered questions for New York Times and others recently, I think. Okay. Yeah. I, I might have just... Was it the Methuselah Part Two, maybe story? It could have been um, the uh, so the this podcast the um, the collective is the Little Blue Stem Collective, and they have a nursery. And they, anyways, they spend a lot of time collecting seeds um, in the wild, and then doing different things to germinate them and propagate, basically. And um, so they're kind of working at the. I would, I feel like at the level of you were talking about trying to get farmers to get get into basically seed orcharding. Yeah, um, totally. They're kind of working at that level. Oh, that's um, amazing. Which you know, 
seems seems like there's a lot of pushing to do there, you know, to get people. Well, just yeah. Why, 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 if you're a farmer and you're in the business of making money and now you want to take on a species that nobody knows how to grow with no yeah. subsidies, why do you want to do that? Right. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's a hard sell. <laughs> feels like, yeah. I mean, I want, I want them to do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I might've, it might've been in talking with one of them that we talked about Carol Baskin or something. Um, cause they're really into the whole seed thing, but I mean, it's like the cheapest, yeah. the cheapest way. Well, you get the same thing in restoration projects too, right? So if you're going to, whether you're direct seeding or, or going to sow plugs or whatever, you mm-hmm. know, out plant plugs, you know, you have to, you probably want to germinate the seeds to be able to germinate before yeah. you sow them <laughs> in whatever way you're going to do it. Right. Right. Yeah. That's so interesting, man. So you're how, how far are you into the doctorate? program right now yeah so this is it's yeah so this is the european model so it's only three years okay instead um, of like six or something yeah here? six six plus yeah yeah 20 <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm my my master's took three and a half and okay. i might even still be there if i didn't get this job so mm. <laughs> yeah so if i do if i do complete this uh, phd in less than three and a half years i'll have done it in less time than my master's wow <laughs> Oh, and I should say that my undergrad took 11 years. My very first... Oh, my God. Yes. My very first uh, college classes were in 1999, and I didn't gra- graduate until 2010. Were you just sort of taking them here and there? Is that how that worked? Or? Yeah, you know, life is weird, you know. Yeah, sure. Like, yeah, I worked in audiovisual for a while. Right, and right. And, you know, I was doing surround sound for people for a, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of doing that on the side type of thing? Yeah, No. <laughs> no, not on this. It was, the classes were on the side, unfortunately. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I do want to push a little bit towards the personhood thing, even though you said you don't yeah, necessarily well, have anything to say can about try, it. Try, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, um, do you talk to your seeds ever? Like, come mm. on, or well, I will sometimes thank a plant when I collect it. I guess. Think a thank a plant. Thank yeah, thank yeah. a plant. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're giving you, um, we, yeah. So when, when we, yeah, so we did, um, yeah. So another one of my PhD projects is looking at, um, salinity tolerance in mm-hmm. coastal species, um, mm-hmm. native, common, rare, and invasive. Um, mm. and, um, yeah, their effect on germination. But then another part of that is looking at, um, tolerance in the field. And so, we had a, um, a project where down at Allerton Beach um, mm-hmm. or La Waikai, we, we had a field site set up there um, and we used seeds and plants and, and yeah, and when we, we planted them, we, um, it was led by a, a native Hawaiian and we said a pule mm-hmm. for every, or a prayer for every plant that we uh, in the ground, which was hundreds. Mm. Mm-hmm. Probably took a little bit longer mm-hmm. doing yeah. it that way. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, we wanted to make sure that we were um, following protocols. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And so that's, that's the thing that we did. Yeah. Um, yeah. When we, um, like at it, uh, Lima Huli, there's mm-hmm. the upper preserve and the lower preserve. And, um, when they take us into the lower preserve, we, we say an Oli, um, which is like a, a kind of like a chant. Um, mm-hmm. and 
uh, before we enter that part of the forest. Really? Mm. Wow. Yeah, I, I feel like conversations with plants are pretty much all plant nerd type people <laughs> have them. Yeah. Right? In one way or another. Yeah. Does he yell at them count? Why won't you germinate? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess so. Right? That's a, I don't, that's a yeah. form of conversation. But I, yeah, I don't. It was a joke. I don't yell at them. Yeah. 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 I mean, um, do you ever, um, uh, do you ever feel like you get anything back? Like in terms of like a response, you know, if you're doing either the, the chant or, or saying thanks for the seeds or whatever. Mm, I guess I haven't, yeah, I guess I haven't thought about it. I don't think so. Um, but I may not also have been listening. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, who knows how you would really quantify something like that anyways, like to say, yes, I definitely did or didn't get something back. You know? Right. I mean, I, you're probably sensing that I have a, a lot of interest in like metaphysics and philosophy and stuff right now you know because yeah. i love to yeah. pry into those things like what is it what does it actually mean to say that you had a conversation with a plant you know because you can talk all you want and imagine whatever you want coming back to you but i just uh I'm, i think it's really interesting i think there is often some sort of feedback you know and you know you work a lot with seeds but um you know when i'm working with a growing above ground plant you know you tend to get a lot of feedback to what you're doing, you know, whether you're pruning or, sure. you know, oh, yeah, deadheading totally. or, or, or yeah. watering or mulching or whatever, you know? Yeah, I mostly don't have those types of interactions. Yeah. Right? Because I have the seeds and then they germinate, defined by radical emergence, and then I, I hand them off to the nursery. Mm-hmm. So I only have that one thing, really. And sometimes they'll, they'll little cotyledon or cotyledons will emerge uh, um, yeah. before they make it there. And so, you know, they're really cute. Yeah, um, for sure. That's the cutest stage, I think. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you should see the baby um, Alula. They're really cute, too. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So I don't have that. It's a relationship, right? So, like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can imagine, yeah, you prune or you give them a different fertilizer or something, and then they respond in some way. Right. Right. So pretty immediately, usually visually, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I guess, I guess I don't have that relationship. So yeah. I might sow them in different temperatures. Um, and then some of them will germinate or all of them will germinate or only some of them will germinate, but that's not really the same thing. You yeah. know what I mean, which brings up an interesting thing actually, is that all the things that I've talked about, um, whether it's, um, whether the seed is dormant or not, or how long, um, the, the seeds are going to live, um, that actually all happens with a single seed, uh, right? Mm. So a, a seed um, will lose the ability to germinate at some point in time, right? And so I can't, or no one can really uh, quantify that in any way, mm-hmm. right? So what we have to do is we have to take samples uh, from a collection and find out what's happening to those, only those, that sample of those seeds that you've sown, mm-hmm. realizing, right, so... You know, germination is 72%. Um, okay. But that doesn't tell us what's happening with that individual seed. Sure. Yeah. Right. So yeah. With, yeah. So maybe that's one of the biggest differences, I guess. Hmm. Um, 
with why I don't have, yeah. So yeah, so you don't have a relationship with a plant that you're pruning and fertilizing and doing whatever with. Right. Right. Yeah. That's so Which makes all the things I do a little bit hard, by the way. Yeah, I mean, it's all kind of <laughs> hidden, right? Like it's, it's that like germinal moment that's so important without which there is nothing, you know, like in terms of that plant's existence. Right. The moment of it. Right. And yeah, any seed will either germinate or not at any point in its right. life. Right. Right. Yeah. But like, and that's actually what I care about, but I can't actually measure that. Right. I mean, <laughs> that, that is a fascinating kind of relationship to have something that you'd never directly get to behold or, or apprehend, you know, like it's right. kind of ethereal and yet, uh, it's so physical in that one little thing, you know, yeah. um, sort of reminds me of like, you know, quantum measurements. Cause you can't really quantify it without seriously affecting it. You know, like right. you cut it open and probably learn some it's things like about its viability. Oh my gosh. It is like that, you know, but right. you, but, that's that's right, right? So either germinate it or not, right? Yeah. I mean, like we either test it or not. And if we test it, well, then we don't have it anymore. Then it's not going to germinate. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. So interesting. Um, yeah. Gosh. Good so analogy. Much. I like that. Oh, I'm going to use that. Good. <laughs> that's great. I love when my philosophy occasionally becomes useful. <laughs> I basically do quantum physics. I mean, yeah, you're basically a quantum scientist. I don't want to like oversell myself, but I'm like a quantum scientist. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I did just in the same realm. I want to touch back on one other thing that I wrote down from early on in the conversation. Um, how there's an asymmetry in funding for different types of conservation. Yeah. And, um, you probably know where I'm going already, but you mentioned that it's easier to get funding for a big charismatic megafauna, yeah. you know, like something with a, a face maybe, um, than it is to get for, you know, these quiet, you know, kind of, you know, they're not all that animated plants. Yeah. Um, do yeah. you, I mean, to me, it, it seems like that sort of indicates that there is a, anthropomorphization that's that's easier you know when the, the physical form is a little bit more like ours and there's right. some more you know you get immediate you can talk to a cow yeah you know what i mean you can yeah. talk to a bird yeah you know um, right i mean you can you can pet a panda you can right you know watch a tiger play with a ball mm -hmm. yeah yeah um yeah so there's yeah this phenomenon we used to call it plant blindness Mm. Uh, but we now call it uh, plant awareness disparity uh, for the politically correct term. <laughs> a, um, little bit, a little bit more of a mouthful. Yes. And the whole, the whole idea was that it was supposed to be catchy and, and um, relatable. Um, so now we've got away plant, from that a little bit. Plant awareness disparity. disparity. Yeah. But this is we where... Could, we could come up with something better. Right. Probably. <laughs> I like plant blindness, but whatever. Anyway. I, plant blindness is good. Um, yeah, so that's where, you know, plants just become the green backdrop to the world. Um, right. and you don't, you don't actually see them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, it's funny. It's, it's like, we, you know, most of us listening right now and you and I definitely, uh, are all interacting with seeds right now, mm -hmm. uh, because we're wearing cotton, yeah. right? So we're all intimately, uh, familiar with seeds mm -hmm. intimately. Um, <laughs> yeah. And of course, you know, we need plants to you know live right um yeah anyway so 
Yeah, so it's, it's become a problem, and um, I can get you some quotes and some actual, to quantify this with, with figures, with money, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, uh, another way to say this, oh, I heard this recently, um, another one of my seed um, heroes um, said something along the lines of, you know, animal conservation is measured in um, humans per plant, and plant conserv or sorry, yeah, animal conservation is measured in humans um, per animal, and plant conservation is measured in plants per human. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So that, that was my seed hero, uh, Christina Walters, said that recently. Wow. That is... <laughs> man, that's like a tongue twister <laughs> yeah. for my brain. <laughs> Right, was I, it, was, um, it was hard. It was hard for me. Oh, uh, Christina Walters. Christina Walters. Yeah, she's at the National Native Seed Lab in Fort Collins. Okay. Uh, another one of my seed heroes. Yeah, I, I mean, I, one thing I've a term that I've used a lot uh, and heard a lot, just being a gardener, is uh, sort of the idea of like the green carpet. Hmm. Like, um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't have any data to back it up, but I would wager that most people in America anyways, um, you know, you see green and it's basically like undifferentiated, you know? Um, and the process of differentiating is like, uh, it's, I think there's maybe a steep curve at the beginning of it, like a very steep learning curve to get to the point where you can identify one thing versus another. And then maybe, pick two things out of that, you know, mess of green on the side of the highway or whatever. But I mean, that's related to plant blindness, I think. It is plant blindness. Yeah. The same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's it. Yeah. Do you, um, I don't know. What do you think about trying to shift, shift the tide there a little bit? Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, if you don't, I mean, so we're, like plant conservation in general is like terribly underfunded, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think part of that is just awareness um, and communication and, and outreach. Um, but yeah, I think that's one of the things that NTPG is trying to do, right? So like our mission is to save plants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that's one of the things that NTPG's hold is trying to do is trying to, mm-hmm. is, yeah, trying to overcome this. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's a problem. Yeah, definitely, definitely hard to break through for whatever reason. So people like you and your podcast, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like this is huge. Yeah, you know? could but, be. Yeah, I mean this is one of the reasons. Like, I, you know, I I'm excited to talk to you. Is is you know maybe we can reach some people. I hope so. I I mean we're definitely going to interest a lot of plant nerds for sure Yay, plant nerds <laughs> yeah plant nerds unite yeah. <laughs> oh uh that makes me reminds me seed heroes sounds like an awesome like um it's comic book captain america style it's like, the new marvel yes yeah, the, the marvel verse <laughs> it's seed all heroes. these people running seed banks <laughs> that would be awesome <laughs> <laughs> we need to get like an illustrated like everybody wearing their like leotards and stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, I hope so. I really hope that that can be a thing, but it's hard to, 
it's just hard to make like to give people a reason to care, you know, uh, mm-hmm. when it doesn't seem like it's ever mattered before. You right. Know? Um, right. It's funny too. Like if you, if you ask people like what their priorities are <clears throat> and they, you know, like, like social issues, health, education, environment, mm-hmm. environment, like comes to the very top of the list. Mm-hmm. But if you ask like those same people, like, where are you going to put your money? Um, environment is now then at the bottom of the list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, we're fighting an uphill battle when it comes to what the environment even means to most people. That's so true. I'm thinking of like um, just the phenomenon of the lawn, you nice. know, and what that, that whole uh, just constellation of ideas and choices of words and stuff, right? Like there's, a, there's always um, this military language that you'll find on like Scott's turf builder, you know, like mm. eradicate the weeds, you right. know, like, right. Um, we don't need biodiversity. No, no. What we need is grass, <laughs> grass that you put fertilizer on that, uh, you know, rinses into the waterways and you pump water up out of the well to spray all over it to keep it looking green. I mean, that kind right. of stuff is, is just, established you a know lo- a lot of a lot of cities now have incentives to remove lawns i know oh, do they? yeah so that's cool. yeah so tucson arizona if you go to tucson you see very very few if any lawns oh interesting um but then you you head up into phoenix and it's just like lawn central right mm-hmm. in in phoenix where you know you know the last five years it's gotten above 120 every year i think right um, we have you know there's like 100 days over 100 degrees like Oh my gosh. Yeah. So in the desert, all these lawns. And so I think only recently has the city started offering initiatives to, to remove their lawns, but Mm. you know, that's something that municipalities could easily do. Yeah. Just shifting money around, right? Like, yeah. Incentivizing people. You, you mentioned subsidies for like seed orchards, but like imagine people getting like a tax write off or something for right. Not having lawn. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we got a, a, bio, a lawn, a biodiversity desert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's all the things you mentioned. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, they're, they're awful. I'm sure we don't need to go over all of the myriad sins of having lawns, but <laughs> it's a catastrophe. And it, the, the more that I work in, um, so I'm, I'm right now I'm working more in formal gardening than I ever have before for the last few years. And in, in what? Like formal gardening. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. so just, you know, nicer looking stuff, more manicured. Yeah. The more that I work in that, I just, I'm losing the ability to appreciate the look of a lawn, you know, like I, I don't like the way it looks when it's all mowed and clean anymore. You right. know? And I think even up until pretty recently, it's, it's still been relatively pleasing to see those nice clean lines and, you know, there's something nice about an open field that you can oh sure run around in. But, sure. um, yeah, I just, my, my, my aesthetics have been changing slowly over a really long time. And now I just like kind of hate the look of, of a nice clean lawn. You yeah. Know? I sure. want to see the weeds reaching up. I want to see that succession starting. I want to go, huh, I don't recognize that. And then look, look it up and realize it's a native plant that has been waiting in the seed bank all this time, you know? Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so two more things before we wrap up, if you're good. Sure. Yeah. Um, I would like to ask you, um, I guess just simply like why native plants are important versus, mm. 
other imported plants or, or, um, you know, what, what makes them unique? Yeah. I should really have a canned answer for this question. Shouldn't I? <laughs> yeah. I don't, <laughs> um, I feel like I should do, but I don't, I'm always just like, where do I start? You know? Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, there's the, there's the complex ecological interactions uh, mm-hmm. that you're going to get with, with native plants. Um, you know, I guess, yeah. I mean, I guess there's like, um, how these plants function, uh, in the environment too. Mm-hmm. Um, there's what, ecosystem services they're bringing for people that like to quantify things and have, especially for people who like to have monetary values on things. Uh-huh. That's kind of where the whole ecosystem services came about anyway. But, um, what that whole term ecosystem services, what is that? I don't, I'm not oh, familiar with that. Yeah. So, so you can, uh, yeah. So I haven't thought about this in a while, but you can, yeah, someone, an economist basically, uh, uh, tried to quantify things mm-hmm. uh, in nature uh, by giving them dollar amounts. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that this is a way to reach people who, who care about these things, right? And so, like, okay, well, you know, this forest provides, you know, $7 billion in ecosystem services a year. And then oh for God. people that care about that, they're like, oh, <laughs> wow, now this really, is important, yeah. right? Um, huh. You know, but you could say, you know, that that forest has infinite value too. So, right. you know, so that's, yeah, it's touchy. But yeah, for some people that need to have that, it works really well for them. Oh, well, that's good. I mean, if it's, if it's effective. Yeah. And then you can now, I guess, bring in policy, right? And go sure. to lawmakers and be like, this is $7 million, dude, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Do you want to direct people to a place that they can find your work or anything sure. that you feel passionate about and would like people to... Yeah, if you go to uh, NTBG, as in National Tropical Botanical Garden, .org, ntbg.org, uh, you can click on Science Conservation and then Collections and Seed Lab, and you can see some of my work. Cool. Awesome. Well, Dustin, thank you so much. This has been really cool. Uh, I hope I get to come back here. Yeah, thanks, Ben. It's been really fun talking to you. Wow, we're back. That was incredible. That was really incredible that we just listened to that whole thing right here, right now. It's just, like we never left. It's almost, it's, uh, it's, it's literally like it happened, I mean, just the blink of an eye. Isn't that what they say? I didn't even blink. <laughs> My eyes are pretty dry right now. Yeah, are you okay? Uh, give me a minute. Some eye drops downstairs. <laughs> Hang on a second. <laughs> Get my nictating membranes up. <laughs> oh, that's better. <laughs> You can totally trust your media. We're not weird reptile people. Definitely not. No, we blink all the time. Like, listen, I'm going to blink right now. Sorry. Wrong orifice. Has this thing on? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Every orifice is the wrong orifice when you call it an orifice. orifice. (laughs) Hey, man, a hole's a hole. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's one thing we had to cut out was all the orifice sounds of the interview. <laughs> Just another day at the orifice. <laughs> oh God. Oh man. Uh, how do you feel? How do you feel about that uh, that there interview? Um, a little battered. Yeah, <laughs> bruised. <laughs> um, 
you know, it, listening to y'all talk specifically about the island ecology of Hawaii, I, I couldn't help but see the parallels with continental ecology, particularly in areas that have been carved up by urban and suburban development. Cause like mm-hmm. every single little yeah. stream that's left over in the, the unbuildable parts of a suburban subdivision mm-hmm. or like a city park or something is essentially an Island like Hawaii is right. In that it is isolated from other breeding populations of the organisms that are endemic to that place. Mm-hmm. And so both on a trajectory towards adaptive radiation of whoever happens to be in there, like, you know, we're seeing rapid speciation of potential rapid speciation of critters within that zone. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, the grave threats that come along with any population that just doesn't have that many individuals to work with. Yeah. It's definitely a little bit like a, um, almost like a, a possible future when you look at that, mm. you know, particularly embattled Island ecosystem. I definitely felt that on a, mm-hmm. on a pretty visceral level while I was there. You know, there were a couple things that uh, Dustin and I talked about that really affected me pretty heavily. Mm. And, um, you know, when I returned, and actually for the rest of the trip, I was not in great spirits because, you know, it's Ka- Kauai is like the garden island, right? Yeah. And there are some, like, incredible uh, gardens there. You mm. know, there's Limahuli and all the other, uh, I can't remember them all, but there's a number of, you know, botanical gardens there that are gorgeous and amazing um, and incredible, you know, sort of like refugia in their own right. Um, but, you know, being there and and hearing Dustin say stuff like, um, you know, I probably didn't see any native plants on my drive over there. Yeah. Um, which was, uh, you know, about an hour drive uh, mm-hmm. that pretty much went from the north side of the island down to the south mm-hmm. along the east side, I think. That was shocking. And mm-hmm. it was one of those things, one of those several moments during this interview that I was just like, all right, I'm just going to quickly compartmentalize that <laughs> and, you know, put a little mark that, you know, put a little flag on that for later. Like mm-hmm. I'll just unpack that on in some dark hour later on my own, you know, <laughs> just put that down on those things to keep me awake at yeah. three o'clock in the morning with. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's just, that's just. It really, that, even that just one thing just shifted my perspective completely. And the rest mm. of the trip, I was kind of sour mm-hmm. because it was like, I was looking around, really enjoying a lot of these plants that I just don't know. And I had this yeah. ecosystem that I'm not familiar with at all. Um, and then, and then sort of having that, uh, sort of recontextualized and then coming back here, mm-hmm. you know, to the, to the continental United States, um, it was really bittersweet because here, you know, we're, it's not, it's not nearly as dire mm-hmm. as it is there. You know, there's a lot more breathing room here it, as much as bad as it is here. Excuse me. There's a lot more breathing room. And, you know, one of the things I love about living in this place for so long is that you can drive down the highway or walk into any field or go mm-hmm. into any patch of woods and you start seeing native plants, you know, you see mm-hmm. them there often, you know, beleaguered or, suffering in any one of the myriad Mm. ways that you know about as a, as a plant person, but there they are holding their own or Mm. playing in whatever way they can Mm -hmm. with the other creatures in their, in their biosphere. And it just wasn't the case there. Yeah. And that was like shocking, not just as like a, wow, this, this thing that I had sort of idealized before I got here, Mm. it doesn't actually exist in that form 
um, and hasn't for quite a while. Yeah. But also like, it's like kind of like a uncomfortable look into a possible and near future Yeah, uh, for this area too. And these plants that I feel very close to and these ecosystems that are really important to me on yeah. like a, a more physical embodied level, you know, and there was a couple things just like that. I think I ended up cutting it out of the interview, but, um, I had, I was talking about wanting to record some bird sounds and he had mm. said, uh, you know, go get them now while you can, because the birds aren't going to be there for very long. You know, the, mm. the way that, um, you know, these competitively advantaged non-indigenous species, uh, were working hand in hand with warming temperatures mm. to, increase their habitable range up higher into the mountains where the remaining native bird populations were continually being sequestered to smaller and smaller habitats. You know, it's, it's just fucking bleak, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The mosquitoes marching in, yeah. bearing with them all sorts of exciting new pathogens. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, those same natural processes which favored the adaptive radiation of all those birds and mm -hmm. you know everything from the silver spears to the what was the tree that's everywhere oh yeah oh yeah yeah and all of its relatives yeah um will also be at work on the organisms that are rampant all over the place now mm. you know we're looking at a future of a zillion different kinds of rats which <laughs> you know maybe that's not as exciting but like you know when they're big and cute and furry and some of them are blue, then it'll be, and they're found nowhere else in the world. Yeah. And, you know, suddenly it, it becomes exciting again. You know, nature doesn't ever stop. Not even when organisms like us throw a curveball into things. Absolutely. You know, the processes keep on going and keep on going and keep on going. There's still green on the gray volcanic stone of the Hawaiian islands. Yeah, there is. Not that, you know, that's necessarily in compensation for the arguably unnecessary destruction of all of the endemic Hawaiian flora and fauna, mm. which is occurring right now. Yeah. But it is part and parcel of the broader life process. It is, it is. And, and, and it, it really highlights the, the significance and the value of the work of conservationists and ecologists mm. who are involved in those processes. Mm. Um, both in resisting them or mitigating them or finding ways to sort of like work with them, you know, mm -hmm. um, to preserve things that are, you know, on their way out or mm -hmm. to study them or to recognize them or, you know, yeah. Remember them, you know, and, and there's, there's meaning in that too. Yeah. Um, even if it's hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. To be fully aware and, and, cognizant of the processes of loss that are part of the world to properly yeah. honor the dead and to properly tend the dying and to recognize that not all that is embattled is necessarily lost. Right. And that there are some causes that if you fight for them, you achieve, you mm -hmm. stop the destruction. In fact, you turn it right around mm -hmm. and you can gain some ground in this world that it's not inevitable. Defeat is not inevitable in every situation, even though defeat is an inevitable experience as an environmentalist in this particular corner of history, yeah. you're not going to win them all, but you're not going to lose them all either. Yeah. So that's reason enough to keep trying. Yeah. Shout out to Denise Lowe too, who mm. pretty soon we'll be publishing our interview with her. Mm. Um, shout out to her for helping 
you know, I was in a little bit of a dark night of the soul sort of <laughs> afterwards and I was pretty bitter, mm. uh, just sort of feeling a little bit powerless and like, what, what can we do? You know, what can one man do against such hate? <laughs> I think, right. Uh, to getting real Theoden on it. Um, and she, yeah, there our interview with her as uh, all of you will hear very soon. Um, really, really helped to restore a lot of faith and meaning and value uh, yeah. to this work and to, and, and to communities and, and humans who ally themselves with persons, human and otherwise, in a respectful and uh, appropriate, memorable way, you know? That's the key of it. It's, it's finding that mutualism, that mutual exactly. aid between, you know, we tend to think about, in our society, we're trained to, to look at human beings as being intrinsically apart from nature, either in an artificially anthropocentric way wherein we're better than nature. We have overcome our natural roots and are a civilized people uh, with our great technological accomplishments, et cetera, et cetera, all that wank. Uh, that's obviously bullshit. I mean, they need to go into the dumb colonialist racist reasons for that. Uh, and then there's also a kind of, um, you know, there are many permutations of that, including, you know, the sort of facile belief that, no, man, I'm like really connected to nature. Everything in nature is like for me, you know, it's like to help me become like a, a better person. Like by tracking, I unlock my inner awareness. And in fact, even though I'm a, I'm a white person in America, like because I own these skills, I'm like the natural successor to these beautiful indigenous people who I don't really know anything about and I, I'm certainly not giving anything to. But like whatever they might have had, like that's mine. That's my birthright, man. It's like, you know, that's also lame and horrible. And uh, I'm not talking about yeah, that. No, it's terrible. Um, even though I went on about it too long. <laughs> but like... Yeah, I like that your voice changed enough to signify that that wasn't you. That was like Joe Schmo out there in the brush. Like oh, having man. his Walden experience. <laughs> Is that what they call a bit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it turned into one. Yeah. Oh, man. Bit by bit. <laughs> Sorry. That's uh, terrible. Just the bit. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might have been off more than I could chew. <laughs> We're just going to cut all of this. <laughs> Not a bit of it will be cut. <laughs> oh, just the bitter end. <laughs> but not all that yeah. shit, but like, you know, a recognition that there are there are real material ways in which you are of benefit to the land and the land is directly of benefit to you. And that material includes, you know, your psychic well-being. Yeah. You know, that Absolutely. there is a possibility for true reciprocity, emotional reciprocity between yourself and the landscape, even landscapes which are in their current form doomed. Yeah. You know, to inhabit them well, you can still do right by a place that's that's on on the decline, that is below the minimum viable population. You can still do right by those organisms. Yeah. To help the landscape succeed because the ecology doesn't die with the extinction of any one organism. A forest is still a forest regardless of its makeup. Right. You know, things are, the life is still on the islands, even if the specific population is changing in dynamic or even makeup. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And shout out to all the people out there who are doing that work also, mm. um, including, you know, Dustin, who I interviewed, um, who, you know, a lot of the stuff that wasn't in the interview was just him and I geeking out about, <laughs> Uh, various people who were associated. So when I was mm. there, almost everybody that worked there was all away together on some kind of expedition. Mm. Um, 
And so he, he regaled me with many a tale of adventurous, God, I guess conservationist isn't really the word because conservationism has always sounded like an office job in some way to me. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, people repelling down cliffs because they saw a single individual of a mm-hmm. species thought to be extinct, you know, and mm-hmm. getting repelling down there to grab a a seed or a cutting mm-hmm. or a bit of a root, you know, and, um, and bring it back. And, 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 you know, there's a lot of just, just mad respect for those people living, yeah. living their fucking best lives out there and doing, doing the Lord's work. And yeah, if you're ever in Kauai, um, definitely go check out the national tropical botanical gardens there. I believe it's mm-hmm. the McBride research center. They have an incredible library there. Mm-hmm. Um, a plant library as well. Um, a, um, sorry, her, uh, herbarium, herbarium and all these dried samples in folders categorized mm-hmm. and described and just an incredible resource. And then also just a, a library mm-hmm. that was just about plants and biology and fungi and, and, you know, microorganisms, and all this shit, the, their magazine rack, like mm-hmm. got me so giddy. I was just like, <laughs> I was like, I didn't even know that these kind of magazines were out there. And here's like 500 of them all just lined up on this magazine rack, you know, like exotic plant fanciers monthly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The smut was down at the end <laughs> with the, um, the corn, you know, like <laughs> magazines and stuff. <laughs> corn smut. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. no, a really great organization. Lots of cool shit to see and do there and probably lots of ways to support them. Yeah. So that's all I got. Um, hmm. How you feel? You good? Yeah, I I really enjoyed uh, listening to this. Great, uh, with awesome. y'all, and uh, and I hope you all have as well. Once again, this has been another exciting episode of By the Seed of Our Plants. And once again, if you do feel like kicking us some dough at this point, uh, we do have a match grant going. So hit us up at patreon.com/slash By the Seed of Our Plants or littlebluestem.net. <laughs>